zip lock that Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap I remember nights, I didn't remember nights I damn near went crazy, I had to get it right Now I'm your favorite rapper's favorite rapper Hey, now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper The absolute truth, yeah, no joke Folks, ladies and gentlemen, hombres and mujeres, welcome back to the Trap Draw. I'm TC. I am joined today by my two esteemed colleagues, Mr. Kevin Van Valkenburg. Hello, sir. Hello, uh, TC. I'm very excited to tell you all about uh, the time that Tom Benson was negotiating with Master P. <laughs> Hell yeah. Mr. Icarito himself, Mr. Neil Schuster. Hola, hermano, if, if that's the theme we're going with. This week, I'm fired up. I'm not going to tell the people what I'm discussing today, but I think it's going to get you real fired up, TC. You know what? I think we've got two such rich, figuratively and literally, you know, subject matter subjects here that I'm actually going to going to punt mine until a future week, just because I don't think we can we can fit everything in with three owners into one episode. So we're going to do two owners today, but I promise it'll be just chock full. I'm like. This might be a two-hour pod with, with with just the two owners as well. So before we get there, let's thank our first sponsor, and that's Roback. I don't have to tell you guys, you know, the fit, the feel, the fabric. Uh, I've been wearing it all summer. We're finally getting into fall here. Uh, they're polos, great collars on the polos, great patterns. Neil, we're working on some custom stuff right now that's going to hit into next year. We got a bunch of uh, Roback hoodies coming into our shop here in the next a lot next of subtle weeks. dog logos coming coming your way here in the next uh week or two but i would say go to roback.com r-h-o-b-a-c-k.com and you can enter code trap that's t-r-a-p trap for a generous 20 percent off your first order from the pullovers to the hoodies to the polos i've been seeing that that subtle dog logo everywhere have you been given the nod? Have you been calling it out when you see it? I've been calling it out. I've been giving them the subtle nod. I know that those people have that dog in them when they, when they have that dog on them. Uh, I would also like to give a shout out to, I know they want to you know, talk about the golf gear, but I, I like their athletic shirts. I've been wearing them to work out a bunch. The t-shirts are really good too. So if you're looking to, to re-up the uh, athletic gear as I have during my, my uh, strain challenges the last month and a half uh would, would check out roback.com for that too and i believe that code trap will work for 20 percent off if it's your first purchase yeah they got some nice nice stuff in the fall collection right now these state polos that, that they've got are awesome the everglades is the florida one commonwealth the bayou the mitten all sorts of cool cool kind of state patterns there so check them out roback.com thanks for their support uh, and also thanks to Mr. Jeezy. I apologize of right off the top. Also people calling for a, a mea culpa from you on Snyder of Hanover and Utz debacle from our last owner's pod. Apparently they're not owned. Snyder of Hanover is separate from Utz and owned by Campbell's. So that was news to me as well. Yeah, this is like my third or fourth mea culpa involved with the Snyders. You know, first see, of all, I feel, I had I feel to, terrible. I may have walked you into some of this, but with the original Baltimore stuff, like it, it's partially on me. TC. So I'll hand up my bad. You know, we were going to start calling Solly Solomon of Hanover as the pretzel boy. TC might have started Pretzel Gate. He's he's all twisted up on on pronunciation, on ownership. It's it's tough out here. 
Yeah, I actually uh, I went to Publix yesterday. I normally reach for Snyder's of Hanover. Uh, I actually bought some Utz pretzels just as, as a as kind of a mea culpa on my end of hey, I'm going to reach across the aisle here. They are based in Snyder's Pencil or, or Hanover, Pennsylvania. They are not owned by Snyder's of Hanover. So uh, a lot of the a lot of the Pennsylvania folks were a they were upset about my original pronunciation of Utz. I said Utz originally. And then also they said. KVV, get out of here with the the Maryland stuff. This is a Pennsylvania. Company. Sounds like Hanover might be like the the yeah. epicenter of Pretzel Towns, Pretzel Town USA. I mean, we may have to send send Sally on a on a film room visit up there, play like Hanover Country Club or something. <laughs> Eat a bunch of pretzels. So, uh, well, listen, I'm going to kick it off, and I'm going to tell you, I don't think that my subject matter eats pretzels. Uh, and I don't think he wears Roback, which I, I think you guys will agree with. So I want to kick it off. I want to shout out uh, KVV, newspapers.com. What a resource, man. Getting deep into some old newspaper articles around the time that this gentleman bought the team, going into some archival stuff on the former owner of the team. As somebody who has a lot of experience with this team, uh, it was fantastic. So this may give it away to, to some of you out there, but I want to open up with a quote from a legend named Furman Bisher, quote, and this is from 2002 when the team was bought, quote, first impressions are usually reliable. First impressions of Arthur Blank is that here is a man's man, physically attractive, athletic stride for a man of 59, sartorially resplendent, manner smooth as single malt scotch, end quote. That was from Furman Bisher's Atlanta Journal-Constitution column when Arthur Blank bought the team from the Smith family, from Taylor Smith, the son of Rankin Smith Sr. We're going to get to him. Don't worry. And that was, I, I thought that was, you know, a little better. Um, if I go back to myself, this is me, 2002, or in fifth, sixth grade time frame. TC, you and I growing up in Atlanta, we lived through this. My first impression, and I remember this as a kid, I was like, dang, this guy takes himself really seriously. The guy, he dresses like Benoit Blanc from Knives Out. Like, I don't think he owns a blue suit. I think it's it's only pinstripes. It's outrageous haberdasher stuff that Arthur Blank's always dressed in. Some have said he looks like a Bond villain. He just looks, he's always looked really intense. So we will be covering Arthur Blank. He's 80 years old with a net worth of $7.8 He's the kind of guy that has his own tagline. And that is, quote, there is no finish line. This is a this is a driven man. Some would say, you know, some some of the people writing about uh, Home Depot have said he's a control freak. I think we that will be backed up in this episode. But Arthur Blank is the uh, owner, I guess, you know, chairman of AMB Group, named after himself, uh, which is the parent company of the Atlanta Falcons, Mercedes Benz Arena, the Atlanta United MLS team, PGA Tour Superstore, a new TGL franchise announced this year. And then AMB West, which is his portfolio of high-end guest ranches, including Mountain Sky Guest Ranch in Montana, West Creek Ranch, and Paradise Valley Ranch. KVV, Arthur Blank is one of those guys that's moving in on your, uh, you know, kind of your, your homeland out there in Montana. It's true. It, all the rich guys are, are basically in like a land war out there in Montana. Who can buy up the most uh, stuff, whether it's Taylor Sheridan or, or the late Ted Turner? Uh, Arthur Blank getting in on that deep, yeah. My guy Stan Kroenke. Yes. Yes. Uh, so right. Blank's been messing around out there since 1998. Of course, 
his source of wealth. Uh, he is a self-made man, and I would I would like I I feel like I'm going to give Blank a lot of credit, but he's kind of an easy guy to make fun of as well. But he is the co-founder of Home Depot, the Home Depot, with Bernie Marcus. Bernie Marcus, of course, is the founder of the Aquarium in Atlanta, another massive philanthropic presence in the city of Atlanta. Uh, most people know Blank better than Bernie Marcus that aren't from Atlanta, but he was the president of Home Depot for, I think, 21 years. Then he became the CEO when Marcus retired. He retired as chairman in 2001, bought the Falcons in 2002. But we're going to go backwards for a second, TC, because there's a lot of stuff here that I didn't really know about happened before I was born with the Falcons. But this was a, a real trip down memory lane. So Arthur Blank purchases the team in 2002 from Taylor Smith. Taylor Smith is the youngest son of the founder of the Falcons, Rankin Smith Sr. Uh, Blank bought the team for $545 million, and now the Falcons are estimated to be worth $4.7 billion. Uh, when he bought the team, his net worth was, Blank's net worth was between $1 and $2 billion. KVV, TC, what do you guys know about Rankin Smith Sr.? I remember from growing up that the Falcons were one of the most poorly run franchises in like the history of sports. Okay. I know I know nothing. So you I'm all ears in education wise. Okay. So, so I, I want to kick this off. Rankin Smith attended the Marist School, TC. Did you know that? I did not. And he also attended Bulls in Jacksonville. Uh so two for you know, one we got a, kind of a, a two for one special. The Marist School, of course, is the alma mater of uh the brother Schuster here. Um Marist I did not School. Know. Not the, he didn't, not the he, Marist School. He Marist School, he went there, then he moved to Jackson, he moved back and finished at North Fulton. He then went to Emory for a year. I think he kind of flunked out ended up at UGA. Uh, he was a World War II pilot, and then he took over his dad's insurance business and became a prominent Atlanta businessman. So he was the CEO and chairman of Life Insurance Company of Georgia through the late 70s, I believe. And then I think he kind of got ousted for, I think he might've been hitting the bottle a little too hard, but that's neither here nor there. So according to the AJC, but also to Wikipedia, the Falcons quote fell into his lap in 1965 when when he was at the young age of 41. In 1965, the AFL was bucking its head and they wanted to expand to Atlanta. And then there was this guy named Leonard Wrench who ran Cox Broadcasting. TC knows all about Cox. They're kind of a quiet company, but I think the third largest cable provider in the United States. I think they own AutoTrader.com. They just bought Axios. They kind of do big things quietly and they're based in Atlanta. Yeah. Massive privately held. Yes. Company. And they've been run by this family for a long time. I don't know much about them. I just know that they do big things. Uh, they wanted to, he specifically wanted to bring an AFL franchise to Atlanta. So wrench set up a deal, but then apparently this is according to Furman Bisher. He had to fly to New Zealand because his wife uh, had a rare and critical heart operation all of a sudden. So in New Zealand. Yeah, I know. Wild. Right. So then, while he's gone, Pete Rozelle swooped in, and apparently he'd been dragging his feet on expanding the NFL, but he was like, oh, no, we got to take over Atlanta. So he swoops in, and, and through the governor of Georgia at the time, Carl Sanders, who was Rankin Smith's roommate at UGA, he starts talking to Rankin Smith, and basically the NFL like brokered this deal, and Rankin Smith reneges on his commitment to the AFL, and signs up to be uh, kind of an NFL franchise because I think the NFL still had a little bit more cachet at the time. And so uh, for eight, I think he got the team for Rankin Smith paid $8.5 million for the rights to start an NFL franchise on June 30th, 1965. And he secured the rights to use Fulton County Stadium for the 1966 seasons where the Falcons played for 23 years. When the AFL got, you know, 
cucked by the NFL and Roselle. Subsumed, yeah. They ended up moving on and creating the Miami Dolphins uh, in 1966. Um, and then the Saints were added to make the NFL 16 teams because for that 66 season, there were only 15 teams. Saints were created in 67, and then the Bengals joined the AFL in 1968. So it was kind of starting to be a land grab, especially in the southern United States, as these two leagues are still separate. And then I think they – did they merge in 69? That is a great question that I don't know off the top of I think of they head. merged in 69 or 70, so a mea culpa if I got that wrong. But it seemed like up until that point, it was a massive rivalry. And I think as we've learned in golf, like things start to happen quickly when you got two rival leagues kind of going at it, uh, you know, trying to poach stuff from each other. So Furman Bisher, again, another he's a legendary columnist for the AJC for years and years. I think he summed it up here in the 2002 article, again, when Blank bought the team. Quote, and so the seed was sown. The franchise grew but rarely flourished. Rankin and Clan often suffered the wrath of indignant patrons but clung to the franchise. After his death in 1997, it was a foregone conclusion that the franchise was going on the market in due time. Irony of ironies, right after Rankin's death, the Falcons made it to the Super Bowl in 1998 and then lapsed back into Slavin habits. So, a couple <laughs> highlights from the Rankin era. Uh, Rankin ran day-to-day operations until 1990 when he turned it over to his son, Taylor. He was instrumental in getting the Georgia Dome built as one of his last big projects uh, as day-to-day owner in the 80s. The Dome was completed in 1992 at a cost of $214 million, making it one of the largest state-funded construction projects in Georgia history. It's another example and maybe an early example of an owner threatening to leave the city if the city didn't pay up. He kind of had a little courtship with Jacksonville. He thought about moving the team down there, but he yeah, decided not to. Yeah, what was the Jacksonville to. connection? I think he spent some time growing up down there, and I think that they were trying to woo him with some like funding, a new stadium, uh, you know, new market. He's also getting lit up throughout his you know career as the owner. He was accused of like people used to call the uh, Rankin family the the Clampets, like kind of rednecks. Apparently, he's a big hunter. People used to make fun of his duck blind decor in his office. Uh, like he used I to bet just, the Brits hated him. He used to just take it on the chin uh, from the Atlanta media for years and years and years. And he kind of deserved it. But on the good side, he was also he was on the NFL's expansion committee for like 15 years uh, and is credited with playing a big role in the creation of the Jaguars and the Carolina Panthers uh, as new NFL teams. I guess other highlights, 1989 draft. Do you know who the Falcons selected? Brett Favre. No, that was 1990. Deion Sanders. Deion Sanders, prime time, comes to Atlanta. I mean, reading the the newspaper articles about this was fantastic. Shows up in like a, you know, tiger sweatsuit, just bling out all over the place saying, don't call me Neon Deion, I'm prime time. Referring to himself in the third person. And actually, like, that was probably like one of the highlights over the course of 30 years of the Falcons. Up until 2008 and 2009, the Falcons never had back-to-back winning seasons. Think about that for a second. Awful. Just truly putrid. Um, Jerry Glanville, things of that nature. Selects Dion with, I think, the fifth pick overall from Free Shoes University. He played four seasons with the Falcons, as well as playing Major League Baseball for the Braves. Dion was released by the Falcons and traded by the Braves to the Reds. Uh, in the spring of 1994. So he kind of wore out his welcome in the city. It surprises me that Dion only played four years for the Falcons. It seems like, you know, clearly one of the Falcons' most famous 
players and yet was barely there for a full contract it's a fun trip down memory lane he was he was kind of holding both teams hostage your holtz with the braves really tried to justify it of like no we need a left-handed power hitter so we're going to send him and the reds need a leadoff guy but it was just a lot of headaches he held out for on both teams he kept every season would be like oh i might focus just on baseball i might just play football and it was just kind of a circus um but he did bring some much needed excitement to the falcons uh then again TC, as you said, Falcons drafted Brett Favre in 1990, uh, but traded him to Green Bay after his rookie season. Very cool. And then in 1997, Taylor Smith brought in Dan Reeves as the 11th coach in franchise history, which is not good. Uh, but they paid him on five years, $9 million contract, which was very large at the time. And he was kind of like coach, GM, total power uh, given to him. And, it, and I think it, it led to the most successful season in the Rankin era, which was the 1998 Dirty Bird season. Uh, I remember this as some early memory of mine. Chris Chandler taking a knee in the huddle. Jamal Anderson doing the Dirty Bird. Jesse Tuggle leading the Falcons to a 14-2 and record and an NFC championship. They lost to John Elway and the Broncos in the Super Bowl. We hate to see that. That was the year uh, Eugene Robinson, NFL man of the year. Hey, couldn't yeah. sleep, TC. He just needed to take a drive that night and... Uh, you know, one thing led to another. So that was an exciting time. As I referenced earlier, it was poetic that it was the year after Rankin Smith died uh, that they made it to the Super Bowl. Of course, 1999 was a complete disaster with Jamal Anderson tearing his ACL early in the season and the Falcons going 5-11. and 11, um, Neil, which is I can't theme. believe you skipped over June Jones. I haven't. June I haven't skipped over it yet. I'm, I'm, okay, I'm going to okay. get back there. I was trying to hit the highlights <laughs> first before I dig into the lowlights. Okay. So 2001, the Falcons draft who? Mike Vick. Mike Vick, baby. They Excuse traded me, Michael up. Vick. Michael, Michael Vick. Vick. They traded up with the, to get the Chargers pick, and they sent Tim Dwight and I think the fifth or sixth first round pick to the Chargers. Tim what a, and they what a drafted, but Tim Dwight was sick. The Chargers drafted <laughs> Ladanian Tomlinson. So you could say, I mean, the Mike Vick era was electric, or at least a couple seasons were. But uh, you know, if we want to talk about like who had the better career. I mean, that's a toss-up between Michael Vick and LaDainian Tomlinson. Where do you guys stand on that? Neil, we had we had season tickets. I mean, our family had season tickets, or our dad's coming had season tickets. We went to a lot of games in the sterile-ass Georgia Dome. But, man, some of those games against the Panthers. The Vikings. Bucks, the Vikings. Like, we, we were at some some awesome football games. Vic was electric. And, I mean, you know, they tried to put in the – the West Coast offense. We're going to get there. Okay. I promise. We have plenty of time to reminisce. <laughs> but I just wanted to ask you guys, because I was thinking about this doing the research, Michael Vick versus L LT. Career. Which one? I think the Tomlinson's a Hall of Famer. Vick is not. So I know. That's the know. thing, right? So it's like, dang. I, I In some ways, it's, it's really a toss-up, though, because like TC said, you got such electric. I have such electric memories of Michael Vick as a Falcon. Um, I have some very painful ones, too. Some of that's due to, you know, Tomlinson played for a very stable. They had Phillip Rivers. They had a pretty good setup there for a long time, right? Yeah. Yeah, Marty Schottenheimer. Yeah. Big, good, big good, Marty like, guy. Big so, Marty. moral of the story with Rankin Smith, I think by all accounts, it sounds like he was a good man, but the team sucked, like really, really sucked, and he was accused of keeping the team only for financial benefit. It seems like all the owners loved him. Your boy Benson down at the Saints, they were – Thick as thieves, um, and he sounded like he had some some juice because he was an owner for so long that he was kind of one of the senior 
guys, you know, in the owner club. So when he spoke, people listened and it seemed like he was um, a team player among other owners, even though it, sometimes it was at the cost of the Atlanta franchise. But some some lowlights, they did make the playoffs until 1978. And the Falcons had three winning seasons from 1982 to 2001 before Blank came owner. That's not good. Uh, as I said earlier, until Blank bought the team, the Falcons failed to put together consecutive winning seasons uh, for 31 straight years. That's tough. And like I said earlier, he would get lit up by the local media and talk radio with many people calling the Smith family the clampets of the NFL. TC, your boy, Terrence Moore, uh, had an obituary, a little column in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which I think it summed it up pretty good. This is from 1997. Quote, during the dozen years I've worked in Atlanta, I've typed a few unflattering things about the Falcons of Rankin Smith Sr., Words such as wretched, awful, and pathetic come to mind when describing one of the worst franchises in, the, in NFL history. You know what? Never did I have a problem with the soft-spoken old man in the perennial wool hats. He always took my calls. If he wasn't around, he always returned them in a timely fashion. Mostly, he answered every question. Not only that, he always did so with striking honesty. I don't think Rankin Smith knew what an alibi was. I liked Rankin Smith Sr., and I also like his youngest son, Taylor Smith, the Falcons team president. He is among the most pleasant front office types you'll ever find anywhere in sports. I just haven't liked their football judgment, which brings me to the second and the primary reason I'm guessing I hadn't a problem with Rankin Smith Sr. He knew that when I and others scratched our head in public over their decision-making involving the Falcons, that we occasionally were right. You don't go from Dan Henning to Marion Campbell again, to Jerry Glanville, to June Jones, and then to Dan Reeves within a 10-year stretch if you don't think something's wrong as well. Rankin Sr. just couldn't figure out what it was. Too bad. So that was kind of what he wrote as kind of an obituary. And then the lead on the main AJC obituary by Len Pascarelli. The Atlanta, quote, the Atlanta Falcons owner Rankin Smith Sr., who who brought professional sports and the Super Bowl to Atlanta, never expected to be thanked by fans of Atlanta for his contribution, and he never was. That was, I thought that was a good lead in because he goes on to just talk about how, you know, he got just crapped on. Everybody thought he was stingy. And he had a quote in there that was like, you know, being in this job, it's like being in a fishbowl. Sometimes you just got to swim away. Like I just let it, you know, water off a duck's back. So he tried to act like he he didn't care. Um, uh, this is bringing back so many memories of the AJC. Furman Bisher, Tim Tucker, uh, Mark Bradley, Mark Bradley, Terrence a lot of Mark Moore. Bradley stuff. Mark Bradley was on the Dion beat so hard. Like Mark See Bradley how did not like newspapers the are <laughs> didn't like the bling, didn't like the flashiness, you know? Uh, so, uh, it's good stuff. Newspapers.com. I'm going to give them another, Mark, another plug. Mark, do you believe, Neil, do you believe <laughs> Neil real quick? Did Dion get released or did they just lose him? As a so Dion got released because they had him almost, they had something like he was a, a, a transitory status or something like basically he kept not being up front. Like there was that time when he played the, the Braves were in the world series and he played in a football game before like game five. And he said he wasn't going to do that. And then he just, he would just like say one thing and do another. And so like, it came to the point where like both teams just like didn't believe him and they couldn't like, it just seems like he, he, he just did whatever he wanted. And then Nike was like, just like Nike was putting him on the, uh, the, company jet flying them all over the place so it was kind of like nike was his piggy bank and these teams just like were kind of throwing their hands up so from what i read he got released by the falcons first where they were just like yeah we're gonna you know we're gonna cut you 
and then the Braves traded them like a month later. Um, so it's just crazy, man. Like some of my earliest sports memories, like 1991, it was, you know, MC hammer, you know, it was the too legit to quit Falcons. And you got the Falcons, uh, with Andre Risen and Dion and, you know, they're, they're making the playoffs. They're good for the first time, maybe ever. The Braves have been awful for years and years and years. I'm like five or six years old. Braves make the playoffs for the first time and they, they make it for the next 20 years. And then, you know, they move into the dome. I remember mom and dad going to like the first Monday night football game in the dome. And then, you know, fast forward a couple of years, June Jones comes in, they bring in Jeff George. Uh, That's what I was going to say. The June Jones, Jeff George situation. I think did Jeff Jones or Jeff George like spit in his face or they got into it on the sideline. <laughs> and I think that was when Brett Favre was his backup and it just got really, it got really right. embarrassing there in the early nineties. And Guys, then did the, did the did, just real quick, did the franchise have to sit you down and talk about when Lisa left I Lopez burned down under Ryan's oh, yeah, house? For so sure. Like ha have a discussion hey, about you that took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> no, the, the the coverage of that on the local news was unbelievable. Country Club of the South, this house is engulfed in flames. She lit all his shoes on fire in the bathtub. Oh, it's Jordan's. Yeah. yeah. You don't want to burn fiberglass, man. It can uh, it can just burn right up. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I remember like we used to go trick-or-treating in, in Country Club of the South growing up. And, you know, Usher we did not live the there street. for the record. The, the shoes yeah. did not Usher live lived in there and the Jeff Foxworthy. Did they, did they give out full-size candy bars? Because that was always the thing in rich neighborhoods when I was growing up. Was, oh, my God. Yeah. The rumor is they're giving out full-size candy bars in that neighborhood. No, but it was just, God, it was like, you know, basically all the way, even through like the Dan Reeves era, the Falcons just, they just never like, they were never well assembled. They never put together a good foundation. They always had like some some cool good players like Jesse Tuggle. You mentioned him earlier, Neil, or like Chris Chandler came in, or you know, it, but but there was never anything that was like. Here, here's how I'd sum it up, TC. The 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 Ring of Honor before Arthur Blank is like Steve Bartkowski, the quarterback who was like a born again Christian in the '80s, and the kicker Morton Anderson. And then there was like Gerald Ruggs, like the running back for like six or seven years in the eighties. But then he exited, like he got all pissed off and left and went to the, I think he went to the Redskins in the early nineties. Like there's just not a lot to talk about, you know, other than like two playoff appearances in the seventies and eighties. And then the nineties, it turned into a circus with all the coaching changes, all the flash and, and sizzle with, you know, Dion and, and the squad. The other thing that, that Rankins used to get beat up about was like the dome you know, it was kind of iconic, but it sucked. Like I remember a vivid memory of my, of mine from the 19, I think it was like 1998, 99 timeframe. We went to the game with our dad. He sent a soft pretzel back three times, like, because the pretzel was like, so <laughs> it was disgusting. It was like, and it, and frozen. It, it, it was like <laughs> the first one was frozen. The next one was mush. And like, it was just like awful. The food sucked. The experience sucked. There was nowhere to park. You know, the dome was next to the Georgia World Congress Center, but it just was like not ever a good experience to go to a Falcons game. Uh, but my dad sending back a soft pretzel is like an iconic moment in my life. Of like, <laughs> we still give him shit for basically that. Basically, like, this is bullshit, man. Like, I'm not eating this. You know, I paid like $9 for this pretzel back in the 90s. Like, how can you serve this to somebody? He was in, but it was, was also curious. like the place was like outdated so quickly. You felt like you were in this circus tent. Yeah. And, you know, the nicest time of the year in Atlanta is like September, October, November. 
and you go inside on a Sunday afternoon at 1 p.m. when it's 77 degrees outside and you're going inside and it's quiet. It's just, you felt like you were walking into a mausoleum or something. It was depressing. But the, I will say the, the dome hosted the Super Bowl twice, which would, I would put in the Rankin Smith senior highlights. Like he really went to war to get those Super Bowls. And those were a boon for the city. I think hosting the SEC championship, like the dome has been the site of a lot of important sporting events, including our high school football semifinal matchups tc uh so yes. we have some personal memories in the dome and i think because it's so hot in atlanta yeah. they built a dome so that they could have year-round events there and i think totally. it ended up being a you know a benefit because you look at some other stadiums that are kind of funded by cities and they when they're outdoors they almost prevents them from being you know i guess financially profitable for for cities yeah in some and way. it was right before the whole like retractable roof craze yeah as well but it, but so. it, there's no doubt that the dome became outdated very quickly uh, once you got into the early 2000s. So I mean, they that's, knocked that's what I have on the Rankin Smith Senior <laughs> 25 <era>. years. <laughs> I know we 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 got we're 28 minutes in. I know we, we skipped over some stuff, but blank. I want to keep us moving. <laughs> Hence why we're only doing two owners today. Um, yeah. So as I mentioned before, it's let's zoom. We'll go. We're going to go to 2001, 2002. When Rankin Smith died in '97, the team passed to his youngest son, Taylor Smith. Uh, and then a deal with blank was brokered by a minority Falcons owner at the time. This guy, John Imlay owned 6% of the team with the, with the Rankin family. Imlay was a golf buddy of Arthur blanks and he set up the initial meeting with Taylor Smith. Imlay also helped move the deal along by offering to sell his stake to pay the taxes on behalf of Rankin, um, and then be able to buy back in with blank at a fair price. I'm not sure if that guy's still involved. And then another key piece of the deal for the Rankin family was a pledge from Blank to keep the team in Atlanta, which he was keen to do. So let's move to Arthur Blank. Little Arthur Blank background. He's born in Flushing, Queens, New York, the sunny side oh, neighborhood of Flushing, Queens. And, and I think he dresses like it too. He dresses like he's walking down Bell Boulevard, uh, you know, going to have a, a drink at the, uh, you know, Italian men's club or something like that. Uh, loves to talk about growing up poor. Uh, every pretty much every profile I read was Atlanta magazine or some of the early stuff in the AJC. Uh, he and his brother slept in the only bedroom in the, in his childhood apartment and uh, in Sunnyside while his parents slept on a pullout sofa bed in the family room. Credit to Arthur blank. This is one of those cases where like the, the guy literally is a self-made man. Uh, his dad was a pharmacist. Uh, he died pretty young. And then his mom took over, I think took over the business uh, but Blank credits him with his love of customer service, which is going to come into play later with the Home Depot. Blank went to Stuyves, uh, Stuyvesant High School, which is, uh, I think, kind of Stuy a famous... Stuyvesant, right? Stuyvesant, yeah. I always call it Stuyvesant, but you know I can't pronounce shit. I'm going to get blamed for that one. But it's kind of a high-end public school. I think you have to test to get into it. Like, they only accept, like, people, you know, it's kind of, you know, they separate the the wheat from the shaft in the New York public school system. Um but uh, then he went on to Babson College and he put himself through college doing like landscaping work. Uh, played a ton of sports. Apparently, he was pretty athletic in high school. Very active dude. So, career. Began his career as an accountant for Arthur Young and Company. He then went to work for the Dalen Corporation, where he rose to become president of Elliott Drugstores and Stripe Discount Stores. So, Dalen was a conglomerate that owned a bunch of different retail brands. When Dalen wanted to sell Elliott, Blank moved over to the Handy Dan Home Improvement Centers as the VP of Finance, working under then-CEO Bernie Marcus. 
And then it sounds like a couple years into that partnership, these guys get thick as thieves and they got got in an internal power struggle. So they got fired. The two of them got fired in 1978. So then they, in 78, they don't waste any time. Bernie and Arthur founded the Home Depot with financing from Ken Langone and some other heavy hitters. Your boy, York, Neil. The New York finance scene. God, Langone's name is all, all over everything in New York. And they also received a ton of guidance um, on starting this wholesale warehouse retail concept for home improvement products from Saul Price. Saul Price is the founder of FedMart and Price Club. Those are both the precursors to Costco. I want to give a massive shout out here to a, a podcast called Acquired and specifically the episode on Costco. It's fascinating. And Saul Price is a legend. So basically, Bernie and Arthur go to Saul. And they're like, hey, this you know, kind of wholesale model seems to be working for you with these price clubs. You know, and, and then later on with Costco. And he's like, yeah, this would that guy, this guy, Saul Price, apparently sounded like a legend where like he'd be like, oh, yeah, you guys should definitely start this for home improvement. And so he, he basically like just gave him a bunch of tips to get started. So the, the Home Depot, the concept was it's a one-stop shop for do-it-yourselfers. And Blank became the president. Bernie Marcus became the CEO. And it kind of just went gangbusters almost from the start, it seems like. And Blank is kind of credited with the store's dedication to customer service. I, you know, I think TC, we spent a lot of time at Home Depot with the franchise growing up. And he yeah. would always rave about like, you know, staff at the Home Depot, they know their stuff. I, I don't think it's as true nowadays, but back in the day, it was like, you go in there and whatever you need, that guy's going to help you find it. He's going to help you think through the job. Like it was, you know, it was a really good, really good store. And so I still ride for the Home Depot as an Atlanta-based company. How doers get more done. You know? I'm a Lowe's guy, you know, I can't, I, it was kind of whatever like you, you're comfortable with. I well, think. so the Lowe's stuff is like, they have a lot more, my experience with Lowe's, especially in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee with the birdhouse is like, Lowe's has a lot more like ready-made stuff for you. And it's a little bit less for like, people that are actually handy, which I would probably put myself in that category. But Home Depot is like, yo, we got like the, you know, literally like the nuts and bolts of the project. You're gonna have to do all the work yourself, but we've got everything you could ever need to like do anything around your house. And we also have the staff to help you get it done. And they've got a really good return policies. Like it was really customer service, service oriented business, um, which I think is important to call out because that's kind of what Arthur Blank prides himself on with the Falcons at this point, which we'll get to. Um, so anyway, Blank spent 19 years as the company president before succeeding Bernie Marcus as CEO. He retired as co-chairman in 2001. More of the story is Bernie Marcus and Arthur Blank made all the money at Home Depot, and the company still remains a juggernaut. Um, it seems like they you know, continue to kind of, you know, be a, a good stock to to own. This is not financial advice, but it's a good business. Let me put it that way. A couple of notes from, from a, there's a book by Chris Roush, the author of Inside Home Depot. Quote, Brank was considered to be not surprisingly highly intelligent, diligent, and a control freak uh, during his days at the Home Depot. Uh, even when Home Depot was performing exceptionally by Wall Street standards, board meetings were often filled with discussions about what the company was doing wrong. To this day, Blank likes to observe what's called the three-day rule. Any, anything people want to discuss must be presented to him three days in advance and he always has questions so it sounds like the guy is just he reads everything he's he's a control freak like he has his he wants his to get his hands dirty he wants to roll up his sleeves which i think you could he's a doer you, know, you could offer as a like both like a uh, a pro and a con as a, a sports team owner 
which we'll get to. So this is giving you some ideas, Neil, for our own company. Give a three day rule. I mean, that sounds so <laughs> douchey. Again, back to my first comments. It's just like it's a guy that takes himself super serious. You know, it seems like a hard dude to work for, and it just it almost seems like it's just like yo man, just let your hands off the steering wheel a little bit. Um, and I think that's kind of shown through with the Falcons in the blank era. So blank era starts in 2002, walks into basically Michael Vick rolling out on the field. He kind of had a dream start, honestly, because everybody's so sick of the rankings. There's a ton of energy in, in Atlanta. Vick's electric. It was like, oh my God, this is sweet. So he receives a ton of good press in the AJC for listening to fans. There's all these quotes from like the fan club head of like, yeah, we told him that the parking situation sucks. So he bought up all these like vacant lots and created like a tailgate scene and, you know, blanks out in front of like, yo, anytime, you know, I'm always about listening, you know, it's like two ears, one mouth, like a lot of business platitudes about how like it's going to, it's, you know, it's a new day in Atlanta. It's a new day for the Falcons. Uh, he also comes in and upgrades the dome turf, I think in year two, which TC can relate to this when his high school team played in the semifinals, it was just like, rock hard like truly like a putting mat over concrete in the dome like the the field was terrible rug burns you you go back and look at old falcons highlights everybody's wearing like elbow pads and like it was a kind of a gnarly place to play um so he puts in field turf back when field turf was like a you know kind of just coming on the scene and does some other like you know tries to make the fan experience better which was seems like it was kind of ignored during the ranking era uh, but generally, it was kind of a breath of fresh air. The Falcons go 9-6-1, and one, make the playoffs uh, with Vic lighting it up as a rookie. They beat the Packers at Lambeau, Vic's yeah, rookie season. Yeah, that well. Yeah. And, like, it was just kind of a, like, a dream start. There was so much energy. This is Tron's senior year of high school, 2003, going into the 2003 season. So much energy in the building. And what happens? Vic breaks his leg in the third, second or third preseason game, just on a, you know, should probably shouldn't have been in the game. You know, Dan Reeves is still the coach. I thought Dan Reeves did a pretty good job. Uh, he came, when Blank came in, there was a lot of tension there because Arthur Blank was like, he brought in Rich McKay as a GM. He was going to kind of, Reeves was kind of bucking it, like getting some power taken away. But I thought he let Vic just kind of play. So Vic gets hurt, misses the first 12 games, and Dan Reeves gets fired midway through 2003. Wade Phillips takes over as interim head coach. So I think this is the first, like, I think Blank probably wanted to fire Reeves. He was at the end of his five-year deal, and they were kind of probably button heads behind the scenes. But is, I think it's a good example of, like, Blank just like, okay, I'm going to do it right now. You know, season's over. We're going to fire him before the season ends. So then they bring Hand in. up, Neil. Just, I just think that moment when Vic broke his leg, like, people, you know, we got this weekend Rodgers gets hurt Dobbins gets hurt like you can also tr you can trace back people's feelings about preseason games all the way to that, that moment it's like one of the first like major injuries to like a major investment the young superstar the reason that people do not play in preseason games anymore is essentially because of what happened with Vic. it's exactly right it was just such a waste of a season it was it was a lot like this Rodgers thing of just like oh my god the air is completely out of the balloon the Falcons were kind of the most exciting team because of Vic. And now it was just like, okay, we're back to going like four and 12. Cool. So TC, the Jim Mora era begins. Jim, Jim Mora. Jim L. Mora. Brings the West Coast offense to Atlanta. And I got to say, like, 
It begins with a bang. Again, Falcons go 11-5. and five. They make the NFC Championship game. They lose to the Eagles. I think that was the T.O. year when T.O. is playing on like one leg. Falcons go, like, and then the Falcons go. nap. Yeah, so that's what I was going to say. Like, I never really had a huge problem. I know you're going to disagree with me. I never thought Mora was the problem. I always hated the offensive coordinator, Greg Knapp. And I thought he just took all the excitement out of Vic with the three-step that, drop That was stuff. Mora, too. Like, that was the whole thing that they pitched blank. Like, hey, we're going we're gonna to get the ball out. We're going to, you know, all these short, quick passes, da-da-da-da-da. Vic's not going to freelance. We're going to run the hell out of the ball, too. And it just turned into, like, it basically neutered Vic and turned him into something that he wasn't. No right? wonder he didn't watch film. Who who cares? Yeah, it was <laughs> such a bad drop fit. film. And it was a bad hire, I think, overall. And Greg Knapp sucks. Still sucks. I, I hated the way that guy looked on the sidelines. It just used to bother <laughs> me. But it was just a putrid. It was just kind of a mediocre effort. And so they go 8-8 eight and eight in 2005, 7 and 9, 2006. So Moore gets fired. And then blank brings in who, TC? 2006. God, who was that? Bobby Petrino. Oh, Petrino. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> so sick. Okay. So That's Petrino right. comes in. You know, he's got this electric, he's this electric offensive mind from college. Comes in. You from, know, kind of kind of under the cover. He's so of, excited of to coach darkness. Vic. He's going to change Vic's yeah. career. Yes. So Whoops. Petrino comes in. And I think like literally right after he's fired, Vic gets suspended indefinitely. This is 2007 for dogfighting. The Falcons roll out Joey Harrington at QB. Petrino resigns without notice after 13 games. Literally just bounces to Arkansas. He left a note for the players in the locker room. And I think the note read, quote, if you're reading this, you know. They've boarded up everything. The windows, the doors, everything. That's not what it said. That's that's Frank the Tank from old school. But I can't. I still can't believe that. Like you can't really make that up. You just left a note. Like all right, see you guys. I'm going back to college football. It's such a bummer too because they had some good like players to this. Like Keith Brooking was a stud, great linebacker. He was a 98 draft pick. Patrick Kearney, you know, Algie Crumpler there during like all the Vic years. Crumpler was a good tight end. T.J. Duckett, Roddy White came in in, in 2005. Like they they yeah well. Work the one on. that really pissed me off was when they had they drafted D'Angelo Hall with the first round pick in 04 and Michael Jenkins. Michael Jenkins fucking stunk. Well, that's just, like, you just think that because he went to Ohio State. No, he was terrible. And then they had uh, Matt Schaub. Then they drafted Roddy the next year, but Roddy really didn't do anything the first however many years of his career. Like Roddy's career is so interesting because he didn't really do anything. And then he, and he finally kind of turned the corner um god they roddy was they so solid Williams. though i won't stand for roddy white stuff anyway i don't we're digressing a little bit so this is kind of rock they, bottom they whiffed on that jamal you know that Rick. that other jamal anderson guy oh. all right all right, all right. I, didn't, I didn't i didn't know you guys were gonna go down the leaderboard no i didn't want to i knew but I, I wanted to give tc a chance <laughs> i just to, had to get his thoughts stuff off my chest because i, I understand I think, the, I think the underlying issue during a lot of this is rich mckay is a fucking idiot like i i like i don't know if rich mckay has like you know, scandalous blackmail on Arthur Blank. Like he's still employed. He's still running the show. I know. As, and know, he's the co one like constant throughout guy. all this, but we've, it's been a carousel of coaches and, and kind of blank kind of maybe pulling the trigger too quickly, but you know, maybe, maybe not. It's just a, a lot of like, um, it almost feels frantic sometimes with, with Arthur Blank. Anyway, this is kind of rock bottom and I will give blank credit. Like, so Vic, 
you know, gets suspended by the NFL indefinitely. That's not Arthur Blank's fault. I think the Bobby Petrino hire is a false start. That's his fault. But then Vic gets convicted, spends, you know, has to go to jail for 23 months in December of 2007. So that whole season was, there's just a cloud over the, the franchise. So we we're going into 2008 and this is where it gets a little interesting. Things start to turn around first, the Falcons and blank specifically get bodied by bill Parcells. And this is the second time that happened. He did the same thing to Rankin Smith senior in the eighties where Parcells basically like leaves him at the altar so he can get a better deal from somebody else. Um, so he, Parcells, it's almost like a deal is going to be imminent. He's going to come in as like the football operations guy. He ends up going to the Dolphins, I think, instead, basically leveraging the Atlanta stuff to get a better deal with them, which ends up being probably a blessing because Blank brings in Thomas Dimitrov as GM and Mike Smith is hired as head coach. Uh, they signed Michael Turner um, from the Chargers as running back and they brought they drafted Matt Ryan third overall. Falcons make the playoffs. Ryan's named rookie of the year. Mike Smith is named head coach of the year which is legitimately like this Mike Smith era, like it, it kind of goes out with a whimper, but it's a, there's a lot of regular season success, which is a lot more than you can say about the Falcons for the previous like 40 years. Uh, so they make the playoffs in 2009 as well. This is the first time they've recorded back-to-back -back winning seasons. And then 2008 to 2012, the team's legit good. Roddy White, Julio Jones, Tony Gonzalez, high-powered, high-octane offense. A couple of those seasons get nuked by injuries. Uh, they have pretty good drafts. I think Dimitrov did overall a pretty good job until he wore out his welcome. Uh, but the Falcons keep getting beat in the playoffs. Mike Smith only had one playoff victory. So after a disappointing blowout against the Panthers at the end of the 2014 season uh, to miss the playoffs, they get fucking routed at home. Uh, it was awful. Blanks fires Mike Smith and brings in Dan Quinn, who was at the time the Seahawks D coordinator. I think Dan Quinn, starting 2015, walked into like the table set. So he, he kicks it off with a bang. Uh, literally, the league investigates the Falcons for using artificial crowd noise and docks the Falcons a draft pick. Forgot about I that. forgot about, and I thought that was sick, and that is a that was stain a on Arthur thing. Blank. That's not good. It's it a stain getting, on Atlanta fans. It's terrible. So it was a huge to, thing, getting the dome loud. Yes. That was a huge thing of, like, you know, opposing teams would come in. Dome wasn't loud enough. How do we, how do we fix this? So prior to like say this or or just in general, how was Blank seen uh, by the people of Atlanta? Like was he seen as a savior? Was he like uh, we're not sure about this guy? Like give me a little bit of insight into. So I've got a section of that of how fans perceive him after this, and I know I'm dragging this out a little bit, but I wanted to get through this first. But just just to give you a tease of it, Blank is ever present. He's always in these just always on the like sidelines three piece ridiculous suits with pocket squares and this little pencil mustache always on the sidelines oh he's just around he's he's always looking for a camera he's always the guy that i think of whenever i heard pencil thin mustache by jimmy buffett and i just <laughs> thought about him all again because when buffett passed i was like oh it's that arthur blank yeah it, he loves three-piece suits like like a vest on there he, like, it's like him and chris collinsworth i don't think anybody loves Three-piece suits more than those two. He loves scarves. He like like these like weird like you know. He likes dressing up as the Monopoly Man. Yes, almost. I mean yeah. it's ridiculous. But wears outrageous shit. I mean, it's very much a like New Yorker transplanted into the South and trying to bring <laughs> yes. like his panache uh, to the South. I mean, he's kind of like Dion. Look good, play good, play good. Yeah, get paid yeah. good. Is kind wears of wears really really bright red stuff too. Like he's got this red blazer. He has a red tie on or a bright red pocket square. He always used to show up at the Ritz 
my work there and he would he would be dressed to the nines even then on like a Thursday night. So we'll get let's we'll get into this in just a second. But Dan Quinn era kicks off with a bang. Uh they go to the Super Bowl in 2016, have a 28 to 3 lead in said Super Bowl. I think that's the pinnacle of the franchise. Uh that's all we're gonna say about that. Uh don't I was there. Don't need don't need to relive that because it's both the pinnacle and probably the worst sporting moment of my, you know, kind of half-ass Atlanta fandom. Um, but Mina, God, Mina and tough. I were sitting sitting right next to each other debating about what like Falcons sidebar we were going to write. Like what was the, the, the Falcons piece we were going to write as it slowly kind of like eroded. And then we were like, oh, shit. Uh, I mean, what do I, awful, man. What? Awful. So, 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 so bad. Just for all the re- – like just giving Brady even more juice. It's, okay. it's awful. But that season was kind of the birth in some ways, TC. I, I think that was kind of Shanny's coming out party. I always personally liked Dan Quinn. I think once Shanny left and, you know, again, I think he walked into an awesome situation, which I would give Mike Smith credit for. And then Dan Quinn, you know, kind of got him almost to the mountaintop. And then things got pretty mediocre after the 2016 run. The, 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 a lot of miles on that offense, Tony Gonzalez retires, Julio Jones gets, starts to get banged up. Matt Ryan's been there for, you know, 10 plus years. A lot of draft picks. Yeah, we did. We did. We tried to like, you know, Keanu Neal, like a lot of defensive picks that were just not dudes. Fraud, Desmond Trufant, you know, obviously the Julio, like gave up a lot of value for the Julio thing. Um, So 2020, like Brian Jerry, Sean Weatherspoon, shit like that. Dan Quinn and and Dimitrov are fired five games into the 2020 2020 season. Uh, Raheem Morris finishes the season out. I think the team started 0-5 and ended up going 4-12. and So Raheem Morris ended up leaving, goes to the Rams to be the D coordinator. And they bring in Arthur Smith of FedEx fame from the Tennessee Titans offensive coordinator. Uh, he's the current head coach of the Falcons. And TC, not I don't a, know. You know what, Neil? I will say not of FedEx fame. I thought his he's dad never was, once, was, he, was. He is, but, but he's never once leveraged that or used that. To his benefit, I, I am everybody that I've talked to and read and everything that I've read. He's he's like pre- really really humble and he's never once gotten by on his name. Started as a quality control guy, like very. And I think right he's way. like I've been, I would say pleased, not thrilled with his, you know what he's implementing with the Falcons. I I, I don't understand why he, he thinks he has a quarterback when he when he so doesn't. Weird. But like everything else about the team is like, yo, this is a really solid team if we just had a quarterback. So they, maybe yeah, they whiffed on Ritter. I, I don't know, but but TBD. No, I mean, it was like he was like, what, a late second or early third? I think it's one of those things where they were in salary cap, like the deepest depths of salary cap hell from everything, from all the short-sighted decisions that were made in the back half of the Matt Ryan era with, you know, Dimitrov, made a lot of like Pioli was in there for a while. That's my whole thing is like, there's this revolving door of you got rich McKay and then rich McKay basically gets demoted up to seat president and CEO. And they give Dimitrov all the personnel stuff. Uh, and then Pioli comes in after Dimitrov kind of gets neutered a little bit and it, it's just been this weird. And so bringing in Fontenot from the, from the saints and just totally wiping the slate clean as far as the salary cap goes the last two years. This is really like Arthur Smith's first year, but it's weird. Like they've drafted Pitts and they've drafted uh, Drake London, Drake London and Bijan and like Pitts hasn't done shit. That's because they and can't get him the ball. It's 
just such a weird. Anyway, we're digressing again. Falcons. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, I knew it was going to turn into that, and 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 it's a little cathartic to talk about. But I love it. I'm I'm here to help be therapist. Is help. All of this is on Arthur Blank's watch. So I want to go. Let's let's move into moments of note here, during the the Arthur Blank era. I think the biggest one is Mercedes Benz Stadium. Okay, so they moved out of the dome. Stadium opened in 20, August of 2017 at a cost of one point anywhere. It's I think it's like 1.4 billion. I've seen 1.7, but it was supposed to be like, like 900 massive million. Massive overruns, and Rich McKay was in charge of this whole fucking thing. The guy's been on the competition committee of the NFL for 30 straight years. This guy must have dirt on everybody, or he's the nicest guy in the world, and he's just incapable. So there's some fired. some interesting stuff on Mercedes Benz. This is probably the most interesting stuff for my research. The city paid 200 million dollars funded by the hotel motel tax, the hotel no-tail tax. Uh, and the state used like 40 to 60 million to help with infrastructure and parking stuff. And so the stadium was built right next to the Georgia Dome. They imploded the Georgia Dome. By all accounts, the stadium is awesome. I'm ashamed to say I haven't been there, but I've heard really I don't good like things. It. Um, I can't stand it. One thing in the pro column for blank is I think it's an example of like he didn't hold the city hostage, uh, but he did. He has made out really well. So the stadium is technically owned by the state, but it's operated by AMB Group, which is the Arthur Blank family of companies. And all revenue flows to the to you know AMB, and AMB pays zero property tax on the stadium. And in 2015, well before construction was completed, Mercedes Benz bought the naming rights for the stadium. Mercedes-Benz, then CEO of Mercedes-Benz North America, Steve Cannon. This is my favorite part Had just all. <laughs> moved Mercedes-Benz headquarters from, I think, New Jersey down to Atlanta, the north side of Atlanta, right right around where TC and I grew up. Uh, he signs a 27-year naming rights contract, 27 years before the stadium is even done, at an estimated worth of $325 million, which is the largest marketing deal in Mercedes-Benz history. And then within, I think, six months it might even be less he joins amb as the ceo working to run <laughs> all of arthur blank's company so this guy moves the whole company builds a new headquarters so sick signs a three signs basically the biggest contract in mercedes-benz history basically locks in his ba- biggest client for his new job and then jumps ship and leaves i mean it's just like unbelievable like i, I I'm, he's a west point guy i'm just absolutely Dude, so like, sick I, I, it's just, uh, I, I can't really wrap my head around what a chess move that is. Um, so now he runs like basically everything under the AMB umbrella and he's been the CEO there since, uh, I think 2015, uh, still there. So a couple things I also want to call out, it's estimated the AMB group has already made over $900 million in the past six years on, um, sponsorship stuff, including the Mercedes Benz, but that's, you know, the, all that money flows to them as the operator of the stadium. And they made an estimated $245 million on the PSLs, the preferred seat licenses, before the stadium was even built. So it sounds like Blank didn't hold the city hostage, but he was, he, you know, being a shrewd businessman, he was able to make this like a a massive win for him. Um, I would like to call out, and I think this is really cool. Everybody I've talked to that does go to Mercedes Benz a lot, they say the concession prices are very reasonable. Where it's like street pricing. It's like it's they don't hold you hostage in there. And I think that goes to a, like to credit Arthur Blank. Like I do think he he thinks about the fan experience, customer service, all that stuff. Like he likes to probably talk about it and thump his chest a lot about it. But like this is an example of him backing that up, which I think I really wish more stadiums and airports would do this. It would just 
I don't know. I, I don't understand why we have to get gouged to go to you know public spaces in this country. It bothers me. Totally agree. I think, Neil, I will say the game day experience is great in the stadium. Uh, they've got great concessions. They've got local businesses, all that stuff. Um, the area is still coming back down there. They've done some good things uh, down there as well. I just, the stadium itself, to me, it's really dark and cavernous. And, you know, obviously the roof looks like a giant sphincter and they've already had problems with it opening and closing. It's kind of a complicated design and stuff. It, it just, it doesn't necessarily feel, and maybe it's just because most of the times I've been there, it's been closed, but it doesn't feel light and airy and all that. It feels very dark and metal and like you're in this big hangar almost versus like I've been to um, the Viking stadium up in Minnesota. I've been to SoFi. Like those, those two put it to shame in my opinion, just because they're so light and airy and loud and great. Yeah. I, I think that's, very fair. They also had issues with the retractable sphincter when they opened it. So like, but I would say it's kind of the crowning achievement of blank's ownership of the Falcons. And I would say like, kind of like Robert Kraft, when we talked about him getting, you know, Gillette built, right? Like the key to making NFL ownership, a profitable enterprise and upping the value of the team is you got to own the stadium. And so, you know, credit to Arthur blank for like the guy knows business. Like he, he got that done and, clearly negotiated the deal that both worked for the city because of all the other stuff they can run. And I would also say in 2017, he founded the MLS franchise in Atlanta, which is like the hottest ticket in town. I think they won the MLS in 2018. They sell out those MLS games. Um, so he's brought soccer to Atlanta. He's really leveraged the stadium, I think, to to make the ownership very successful, even if the actual operation of the Falcons has been, I would say, mediocre over those you know, an upgrade from the Rankin era, but mediocre over the last 20 years. I agree. And it'll be a World Cup site when the World Cup comes to the SEC to championship. I mean, Atlanta's a great place to host national events, obviously. I think, Neil, there, there's there's some things there with, you know, he's just made some weird hires, right? The Jim Mora. His coaching hires have been terrible, which you could all argue, as we have here, that that's more of a Rich McKay issue. Maybe he's, you know, but knowing that he's, he's a control Rich freak, McKay, yeah, he's yeah. got to be heavily involved in those, you know, he, he can't, like, we'll see if Arthur Smith is the answer, but the coaches are never exciting with the Falcons. Like, Mike Smith was an exciting hire. Dan Quinn, not an exciting hire. Arthur Smith, not an exciting hire. Like, it's not... They're kind of culture guys. Yeah, too, right? and they're, they're, you know, they're kind of like almost like boring business guys, which maybe that's what Arthur Blank is like drawn to, right? Like operationally, you know, solid CEO types. That's kind of how I would describe Mike Smith. Couple it's things. Fun, funny to me, they've had two guys named Smith as their coach. Like the yeah. most <laughs> nondescript so names true. Possible. It's hard to get excited about him. Mm -hmm. Couple things. I think he's gotten, you know, the with like the Braves. So he, I think he tried to buy the Braves. In the so I had, that's my next note. So uh, in 2006, Blank looked real hard at buying the Braves from Time Warner. Uh, a sale was reported as imminent uh, in late 2006 by the AJC. In 2007, February 2007, the team was sold to Liberty Media run by the cable cowboy himself, John C. Malone. So it sounds like uh, Blank got outbid uh, late in the process for the Braves. Yeah. Um, and I so, think there's, you know, there, and Neil, there were rumors along the way of like moving the team out to Doraville to the old GM plant out there inside of 285, which is what the Braves did. They moved their stadium in. Yeah. And that, you know, 
the city but I think, played chicken with the I Braves think, on on. I think know. Blank was able to leverage, you know, like from a from a demographics perspective, Atlanta is a very very segregated city, and I think the the African American community probably rides harder for the Falcons than they do the Braves, and I think Blank kind of used that for his like to his advantage, you know, as far as. The Braves, like City Hall, City Council really didn't have a whole lot of interest in playing ball with the Braves, but man, the Falcons better stay downtown. Right? Yeah. And I, and think I give them credit big... for keeping them downtown, right? And I think totally. the Braves are also more yeah. of a regional team and I'm yeah. sure their season tickets look, you know, the heat map's probably a lot more on north of the city, but the city really messed that up. They they promised after they built Turner Field, after the Olympics, that they built a MARTA, like a public transport offshoot to the stadium but you could never take public transit to get to turner field you could take it to get to the dome uh and the city just wouldn't do it and they were basically like the Braves are like cool if you don't do this like if we're gonna make upgrades to turner field you need to build a martis thing and kasim reed was like you won't you won't do it you won't leave and they were like cool we're out of here we're going to the north side uh which you know now georgia state plays football at turner field and i think it, it it's all worked out but uh i think it's good that you're, you're right tc that the the Falcons still play downtown. Neil, you you haven't mentioned Blank's three divorces. We're not there yet. Uh, so, okay. fan KVV, here's the section for you. Like, how how do Atlanta fans perceive Arthur Blank? I think, personally speaking, fans kind of tolerate him. In digging into this, I think he's a very capable owner. He's a very active owner. He's not scared to spend money. Uh, if he's going to spend money, he's going to try to find a way to make it profitable for himself, as is his right, as he should. Uh, he seems to listen and care, but at the end of the day, he's kind of a cartoon character. He's easy to make fun of. And so that's kind of how I would describe it. He's always wildly overdressed, ever present on the sidelines, very active as an owner. Um, and just like Rankin Smith, he can't seem to find the right coach. And I think this quote from Jeff Schultz in the AJC TC's boy summed it up pretty well in 2007 uh, with the whole Bobby Petrino leaving Bill Parcells, Mike Vick. I mean, it was just like, oh my God. Quote, Arthur Blank wants to light a fuse. Arthur Blank wants to end this nightmare. Arthur Blank wants to change perceptions, blow up images, save the world, create some buzz, salvage ticket renewals, sell sponsorship, win games, build a new stadium. And he wants to do it all in roughly seven minutes. This is what Arthur Blank really needs to do. Take a deep breath. And I would kind of, I think that kind of sums it up. Like he kind of came in hot in 2002 and just just it just kind of gets all into a tizzy and i think he's slowed it down a little bit over the years but he hasn't really been able to find like from an operational standpoint something successful for like sustained success for the operation of the falcons football franchise yeah um, it's like the same principles that guided your business career were you know that manic attention to detail maybe isn't serving you well as a as an NFL owner. So you know? a couple other odds and ends. Uh Blank left Home Depot with an estimated net worth of one to two billion when he bought the Falcons in 2002. He's now estimated to be worth about 7.9 billion. So I'd say that's a pretty successful, you know, second act there. Uh he's on his third marriage uh with his third divorce pending uh as of 2020. He has six kids. He's pledged to give away half of his wealth in his lifetime, which has led to some issues because it's tough with his net worth continuing to rise and him being such a control freak. There was an Atlanta magazine profile about like how he's like, 
I, yeah, I'm making too much money. I don't know. I don't know who to give it away to. Uh, but there's no doubt. Like I, I think he deserves credit for um, being a big philanthropic presence in Atlanta. Uh, he loves to have his name on stuff. Uh, you could just see the new Children's Healthcare of Atlanta Hospital uh, that he, it's currently under construction. Pace Academy, which is like kind of his high school that he funds in Buckhead. He's poured just a good billion dollars into that. Uh, Fernbank Museum. Um, and then he's done a lot of stuff out with like land grants and trying to, trying to save Montana KVV, you know, do, do big things out in your neck of the woods. Uh, he's fought off cancer twice, prostate cancer most recently. Tough guy. Love it. Yeah. So he, lo- you know, there's a lot of press, like in doing this research before digging into the AJC stuff, like the more recent stuff, there's a lot of, you know, any profiles on blank, it's really focused on dedication to philanthropy you know, like he credits that a lot to his Jewish upbringing. It's just a lot of like, I'm a business, like I'm taking all the lessons I learned from being a awesome businessman and I'm, I'm giving 50% of my wealth away. So a uh, lot of, a lot of puff pieces on that going around about, about Arthur Blank, which I think leads to him being easy to make fun of, of like, okay, here we go again. Like, let's all celebrate what a generous guy you are. There has to be an entire, like, massively lucrative industry in PR of planting stories about rich people giving away their wealth because I think every single one of these owners that we discuss, as you sort through some of the stuff about like what's bullshit and what's PR, like there are, you have to sort through so many things about what an incredible person this is. And and look, if you have a lot of money and you're giving it away, like I think ultimately that's a good thing, whether your intentions are to reduce your tax burden or to actually do good. But it is just funny to me about like every single one of these owners has like a mini documentary made about their charitable efforts or a lengthy magazine piece in the regional magazine or a big sort of puff piece in the times or whatever. It's, it's just funny to me. It's just, it's exhausting really. Like yeah. if without the newspapers.com thing, I was like, God, all I'm going to be able to talk about is how generous Arthur blank is, which just, you know, just gets, it just gets a little exhausting and, and kind of leads to an eye roll. So some of the, there's a great one. There's a great one. A long time anonymous donor yeah like he was he was doing the anonymous donor thing as well for a while i think the divorce thing is interesting too like he met his second wife she was a designer at one of the home depot yes stores uh they got they got divorced after 19 years and then it doesn't sound like this recent one and you know well he i think he met his, his third wife at his you know one of his young sons he's got twins with the second wife i think at his soccer game kind of hit it off with another you know, single mom who had three kids. So they bonded and then now, you know, he's getting divorced again. So I don't know, 80 years old, like, I, I don't know if there's a, a an opportunity for a fourth, but being, you know, I, I, he probably seems like he might be a hard guy to live with. Like he's seems like he's pretty demanding from, you know, Arthur Blank seems like a guy that struggles to turn it off uh, would, would be a, a, you know, an outsider's yeah. perspective. He just needs to like enjoy it and do a little bit less. Sometimes. I think I, what yeah. I would say though is like, you know, we've we've profiled mostly like scummy owners on this podcast. I, I would not put Arthur Blank in that category. I think he's been a net positive on the franchise. He's been an upgrade. Uh, he cares. He probably cares too much, but I think he's been a net positive on Atlanta. He could just probably like do a little less, and and that's kind of where I'll leave it. Any questions, KVV? Any any anything that we missed? I feel like maybe he got. Didn't he? Was there some controversy that he was? He gave a bunch of money to DT 
before the inauguration or something. That was kind of a, a thing. Not, not that I, I'm not, not sure. commenting on the po- politics of it, but I do believe that was uh, there was some backlash against that. That he he was one of the guys uh, along with uh, Tron's guy. Uh, Khan, uh, who gave like a million bucks uh, to the inauguration. I can uh, see Arthur Black. It would surprise me if he was anything but a dyed-in-the-wool capitalist conservative. He's also very active in the Jewish community. I'm sure DT's support of Israel is probably like, hey, man, this guy, you know, him and I'm sure he and Sheldon Adelson out in Las Vegas are thick as thieves. You know, so I I don't, that wouldn't surprise me. It didn't come up in my research, though. Did uh, Arthur's yacht uh, come up at all in your research? It did not. What What do you got for me? Uh, it, it's It's named the Dreamboat. D R E A M B capitalized O A T. So Dreamboat. It's a uh, 295 foot super yacht launched in 2019. Uh, one of the one of the foremost super yachts in the world. Well. KVV, what else you got? I was just kind of curious if there, if you had any sense of his place within the league hierarchy. Like he's not one of the old, you know, the Maras or the, you know, Jerry Jones. He's not one of the sort of elite power brokers, but he's also not a laughing stock. Uh, and just sort of a general sense of how he fits in within the league's kind of click power structure. You know, I was looking for some resource material on that. I couldn't really find any other owner quotes. Like there are a bunch on Rankin Smith who was well regarded. Uh, by other owners my guess is that he's very competent and he's I I would say he's well respected I mean he hasn't really other than the Vic stuff which wasn't his fault the franchise hasn't been in a ton of trouble and of course pumping in crowd noise Uh, those were the only two real scandals I could find uh, related to like like this he, he was unanimously approved as an owner in 2002 the NFL unanimously approved the stadium stuff in in 2015 um so it seems like he's really good at like you know crossing his t's and dotting his i's so i don't think he gets into any hot water with the other owners but i I don't know i think he's probably between him building the new stadium and kind of doing it the way he did it i think he's been on the compensation committee i think he's probably in that kind of top eight to 12 owners that you know are kind of jerry and Kraft and those guys that are kind of pulling the strings with uh, old Raj a little bit. The other thing I, I wanted, I was trying to dig in on, but couldn't find much is just where, I guess he's an avid golfer. I think he's a 16 handicap or he was back in the you know early 2000s. And then he bought PGA Tour Superstore. And I just wanted to kind of understand, like, I guess the Home Depot model, he's like, oh, we'll take this to golf. It, it's kind of, it, it's relevant to his career experience, but that whole ownership and how he works with the PGA Tour is of interest to me. So, Put a call out to the listeners if they know any more about that. Would love to love to get some background on the PGA Tour Superstore tie into the Arthur Blank family of businesses. You know, that kind of feels like uh, his like his version of like being the merch star still, or like being the <laughs> yeah. retail czar. Like, hey, you know what? This is in my DNA. I'm always going to own own some sort of retail store. Which, and I think the PGA Tour Superstore is a, it's a good operation. Like, I always have a, a decent experience every time I've been in there. Um, it's a sensory overload. So anyway, before we get to, uh, our next owner, quick shout out. Real quick, Neil. Yeah. Real quick. I just looked up Arthur Blank's name in gin. Yeah. He is a member at Floridian. He plays off a 16. He's also listed at Atlanta country club in East Lake. 
Okay. Yeah. I was just call. about to raise that. I wonder if Arthur Blank has ever wanted to be like a member of Augusta National. Like you're you're a billionaire who lives or at least does most of his business in Georgia. Uh, you would think, and you're a golfer, but he doesn't. I've never seen any connection to him. We don't know obviously who is and isn't members of Augusta, but uh, it does not seem like he is one. Yeah. Uh, TC, does it show you any any info on rounds played? Click in. Let me see. I'm assuming it's the same. It does not. Oh, oh, let's see here. I'm seeing scores. His low score. You know what? He, he hasn't posted since 2011. Okay. Yeah, he's getting older. He's 80 years old, so maybe he's not playing as much as he used to. But I, I think he was an avid golfer back in the uh, 90s and 2000s. Love that. Maybe he's just po- he maybe he's playing, but he's you know playing by himself. Maybe we can get him for a film room. You know, <laughs> that would be amazing. How about that? Um, peach peach tree, maybe or yeah. All right, shout out to our next partner, AG1, the daily foundational nutritional supplement that supports whole body health. I've been drinking AG1 every day and gave it a try because I was tired of uh, trying to cobble together a bunch of nutrients. Um, So I just poured in a cold glass of water. Uh, My wife, Carson, and I have been uh, drinking it together. Then I usually drink my coffee. Kind of gets me going, gets me some energy. So if you're looking for whole oh god i blew it damn it <laughs> just leave this in the family the family that drinks ag1 together i know stays I, together. I, I, god i don't even know where to go now my my wife is very interested in the ag1 stuff neil she's she saw it got sent to our house or i think i got something from a golfer's journal thing and she's like i i gotta try that but i'm worried about the taste can you give me a little insight into how it might taste all right i'm sorry I, i'm sorry to the people for for just freaking out in the middle of this one we'll do it live uh okay we're gonna pick it up right here i had it in a different document covering my nutritional basis for the day literally couldn't be easier which is why i trust ag1 i just mix one small scoop with water and drink it first day first thing each morning uh i'd also like to add that it costs less than three dollars a day which is a pretty good deal if you ask me you know the strap was like that uh it's a really effective daily habit with high quality sourced ingredients it's a win-win so if a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com forward slash NLU. That's drinkag1.com forward slash NLU to check it out. But Neil, how does it taste? Oh, no, I messed taste? that up too. Sorry, you can go to the NLU <laughs> one or you can go to drinkag1.com forward slash trap draw. Uh, either we one works. This, in. this is either so one good. old school trap draw vibes. Right I don't know. This. You pick, pick your poison. <laughs> Go to the trap draw one. Support the trap draw. Ag1.com forward slash trap draw. Get your daily nutritional stuff lined up. That's it. TC, who's our other partner? Uh oh, we're gonna do it now. Uh, Precision Pro, our hitters. You know, we NX10. You've heard us talk about it. The thing's a freaking tank. Locks onto the target, lightning quick. Got the slope switch, the HD optics, the magnetic cart mount. Uh, you can go to precisionprogolf.com slash NLU, get an NLU range finder. You can get a custom case. Can, can I give a little anecdote about uh, Precision Pro customer support? I got a friend getting married. He was looking to get uh, a gift for his best man, looking to get a golf-related gift. I told him to go to Precision Pro, uh, and his best man is a massive Texas fan. Uh, he reached out to them to see if they could uh, create a custom uh, Texas Longhorns rangefinder cover. They got back to him within 20 minutes, got it done, found a found an image that works, and they're gonna they're gonna make it happen for my guy getting married this weekend. 
Shout out to Jerry Bell. Shout out to Precision Pro. Yeah, precisionpro.com slash NLU. They got this speaker. I didn't even talk about the speaker. Speaker's I love sick. the speaker. Speaker's, speaker's great. Speaker's, very lightweight. It is. Speaker works a lot better than uh, other speakers that I've had in the past. And it's got the magnetic thing. You can just snap it right to the cart if you're when I'm out with my daughter throwing on some Taylor Swift tunes. Uh, it's great. I mean, uh, honestly, shout out to Precision Pro and to AG1. Hopefully they stick with us after two of the worst ad reads in NLU history. Uh, we, we hope they continue their partnership and we appreciate their support. KVV, where are we going next? Neil, we are going to go down to the Big Easy and talk about the Benson family. We're staying uh, in the NFC South. Let's go, baby. Yes. Owners of the New Orleans Saints. Uh, can I just say uh, I fucking hate the Saints? Do you? Too. Yeah, yeah. They they, they they invade. They used to invade the dome. Just oh, you know, awful. obnoxious fan base. I think they, you know, every. I felt bad after Katrina, but they just kind of wore out the welcome real quick. Uh, just yeah. in your face, like you know, you can take all the Saints fans and the the Houdat Nation and just you know stay down in New Orleans for me. I'll give it to them. They're good fans, but man, they're annoying as shit. When you uh, when they come into your city on a Thursday night or a Sunday night game, and you know, twenty to thirty percent of the stadium is Saints fans, and they got these fucking umbrellas that they roll in with that they hold above mm -hmm. your head, it's disgusting. Couple of but who knew the Falcons' uh, energy was going to be high on this podcast? <laughs> we got uh, the Falcons' whole history, and now we're getting some shitting on some Saints. It's true rivals, and that's how you know if you're still you're pissed at the the fact that. Uh, your rival is there. That's how you know you're true fans. So a couple like the of the Panthers aren't aren't really even like no. you, you know you, you guys aren't good enough. Same with the Bucks. The Bucks are they've been Bucks, good, whatever. but it's not, it doesn't yeah. matter. So Neil, I think uh, you did a nice job of setting the table there of what the Falcons were like uh, prior to uh, the blank era. That inspired me to kind of just pull up some of my research, which I wasn't sure I was going to use or not. But um, the Saints, for a long time, uh, created in 1966. <laughs> were one of the truly worst fucking franchises in football. They did not have a winning season for 20 years, uh, from 1966 all the way to eight, 1986. And even then, they only had like two winning seasons uh, after that. Uh, just some sort of enjoyable highlights. The Saints' first owner was a 27-year-old uh, guy named John Meacham Jr., the son of a Texas oil man. This shows you like the value of NFL franchises back in the day that uh, you could have a, a basically a 27-year-old buy, uh, I guess it was an AFL franchise at the time. Uh, and one of his first moves was to sign a 31-year-old running back who had well, no, bad it, knees. It was <laughs> an NFL franchise. They were the 16th. Okay, yeah, so they were right after the Falcons. The, uh, the Saints made a, a number of like – very dubious moves. You talk about like being poorly run. Uh, in 1967, they had the first pick in the in the NFL draft, and they traded it for Johnny Unitas's backup, Gary Cuzo, and they could have had uh, Bubba Smith, who was uh, you know famous uh, Baltimore Colt, and then also went on to star in the Police Academy. Oh, uh, how about videos, that? If you remember, <laughs> yeah. The Saints also, you know, they're kind of just, I mean, as you remember the very famous uh, New Orleans Aints where they were so bad, where they lost like 14 in a row, people started wearing bags on their heads. Uh, that was sort of a, a memorable time in the Saints history. They ended up with Archie Manning uh, as sort of, you know, one of the f great savior of the franchise uh, had sort of starred at Ole Miss, was sort of seen, you know, as New Orleans native Archie Manning uh, was seen as a savior and they basically just like 
completely you know ruined his knees by playing on a field that was you know made essentially of concrete uh completely uh a shit show in in general the saints they, they had all kinds of like goofball characters i'm reading a, a piece from the new york post here one of the times during manning's career he recalls a story about a, a return specialist that the saints signed on waivers who arrived the day of the game and walked into the room with a big red green and blue parrot on his shoulder he put the parrot above his locker in a little cubicle and shut the door. Then the kid went out and bobbled his first punt and fumbled the next one. He had to figure this was going to be the extent of his career. When we came in after the game, the parrot was keeled over, dead as a doornail. <laughs> so Unclear if someone murdered the parrot while the, the guy was uh, out on the field or not. In general, the Saints just were seen as kind of a, a joke, a laughingstock. And then in, you know, there, there was always kind of rumors that they were going to be moved or that there was, it was a you know way for the NFL to kind of cut ties with it. But in 1985, uh, a businessman named Tom Benson decided to get involved in a, in a, what he thought was a group effort to buy the saints. The governor of Louisiana told him that uh, basically, you know, you'll be, you know, you'll be part of one of the fine investors. This is how much money I need you to come up with. I'm going to bring the other guys to the table and, uh, you know, everything will sort of work out. And then when he got to this sort of thing, uh, Benson, who was not really a football fan, said, you know, where's the other investors? Like, what's uh, what's this? And he said, oh, you're the only investor. Like, you're the only guy. So I, I couldn't get any others. So you're the team, basically. Tom Benson is was born in 1927 in New Orleans in the grip of the Great Depression. His own athletic career was sort of ended as a failed attempt to make the freshman basketball team at St. Aloysius High. He later said that he thought that activities like golf and tennis took too much time away from business. So unlike Mr. Blank, he, he saw uh, sports as sort of frivolous things. Benson talked often about his boyhood on the streets of New Orleans. He said, my dad used to preach the virtues of physical fitness to me and made me and my brothers walk two miles to school each way rather than take the bus. Uh, as he told us the LA Times in 1987. It wasn't until I were older that we figured out we could not afford the bus fare. Right. Benson later in a sort of profile about New Orleans said that Benson, his father actually did end up giving him money for the bus. It was like seven cents to ride each way. And Benson learned that he could just pocket that money and save it uh, instead of spending it on, on the bus. Because uh, so uh, this was a, a businessman right from the start. Uh, he graduated high school in 1944 and he joined the U.S. Navy. He mostly missed uh, a lot of you at World War II, but he was a yeoman on the on a battleship for a couple months after Japan surrendered. And when he returned home, he started work as an accountant at a local Chevrolet dealership. Uh, he did some college at the University of Loyola, uh, but then he decided to, to tap out of college and become a car salesman in 1948. So this was a hustler. Tom Benson... If there's one sort of theme that runs throughout his uh, career is that he is basically running away from being poor and he does not ever want to go back there. And he wants to essentially like learn how to find ways to make money as as much as possible. And I would say use it mostly for good. But uh, he was definitely kind of a, someone you would see as kind of a bit of a hustler. KVV, I, I don't want you to get mea culpa, Loyola University. Not University of Loyola. Thank I, you. I don't want the Jesuits coming at you. <laughs> you know, it's why I messed it up because uh, there's Loyola in Baltimore, which I think is okay. here. Uh, so there's two two Loyolas, you know, the Jesuits. They, are, well, there's three. There's one in Chicago yeah. as well. That's right. That's right. That's Sister Jean. The one in Chicago is Sister yeah. Jean. Yep. Became a pretty successful uh, car salesman. But in 1956, 
there was a car dealership in San, San Antonio that was really struggling. Uh, and they offered him 25% of that dealership if he could come and revive it because he was sort of had a reputation for being a, a pretty great salesman. So he did that and he sort of used that uh, uh, basically success and sort of turning around that dealership to then use, buy more car dealerships. He got, this was, uh, Tom Benson did not care at all what kind of cars he, there was to sell. He was just going to sell cars. So he sold BMWs, Isuzu's, Chevys, Toyotas, Nissans. He was agnostic about whatever he was going to sell. He was going to get you into a lot. nice car, Neil. Yeah, <laughs> we're it's, moving. It. It's moving. Neil, what kind, of, what kind of car could we get you into today? That seems that's pretty what, common that's with, of, among, you know, you got the same name on like 15 different car dealerships in whatever part of town you're in. You know, it, it seems like economies of scale there, brand agnostic is is kind of a, a common theme. Used cars, leased cars, you know, whatever. He was, uh, again, he was a charismatic fellow who was going to, get you into a new car if you needed it. Eventually, he kind of used a lot of that money to purchase more car dealerships and then to put it into a bunch of banks. Uh, and he bought up sort of banks. He was one of these guys who's basically like, all right, how can I uh, use my money to make more money? Uh, as we've seen with a lot of these owners, whether it's through, you know, uh, I think we talked about with Stephen Ross, basically be like, all right, let me exploit the tax code. Let me do this. Basically, Benson was looking allegedly, around and be like, allegedly. Yeah, well, I yeah, would, I would guess too that there's so much financing involved with car sales that he was probably like working with banks so closely. He's like, man, I might as well just buy them, you know, mm -hmm. like to help to help to start a financing arm of this car empire. Yes. Uh, so I'm going to read this passage from the LA Times. Uh, that he was sort of seen as like a little bit of an everyman, right? Like he's not someone who came into a lot of money. You know, this is still the NFL era where. Uh, guys were it wasn't rich guys buying teams right it was sort of guys who'd, who'd scraped together earned their money no no teams had like passed down hands yet at this point between their families and so benson was seen as kind of a you know a well-liked uh person among among the fans benson doesn't this is from the la times 1987 benson doesn't come across as a typical nfl owner there is no glitz no gold no driver what you have here is a guy who's supposed to be worth something like a hundred million yet drives a Chevrolet wears a Belova watch and a rumpled, ill-fitting suits that are obviously off the rack. Yes, this is a guy some Louisianans call St. Thomas. He kept the Saints from moving to Phoenix or Jacksonville or Oakland or Baltimore. He has never been much of a football fan. He says he's only attended a few Saints games before he put together a group that brought the franchise. Again, there was no group. It was He, he was the group. He owned 24 car dealerships in Louisiana and Texas with an estimated sales of $400 million and controls six banks in Louisiana and Texas with deposits totaling $400 million and owns a 2.7 million square feet of commercial real estate, much of it in San Antonio. Uh, at the time, he was married to his wife, Grace, and he had seven grown children. They have a home in San Antonio, a condo in New Orleans, and a 2,000-acre ranch in Penderalis River uh, County near Johnson City, Texas. Benson, who as a boy sold copies of the New Orleans Times Picayune to earn spending money, said he became involved in the Saints purchase when it became apparent the city was in danger of losing the team. So initially seen as like a pretty uh, philanthropic guy, like, uh, you know, smart businessman, good owner. One of uh, the first things that uh, Tom Benson. Well, so question, two questions. Yes. One, he bought the team in 85. Mm hmm. And what was the price? It was, I'm sorry, uh, $100 million was his part of his investment. Like uh, the Forbes differs. It, was, it wasn't it was um, entirely disclosed, but Forbes said it was $70 million. He always claimed it was $100 million, said it was sometime uh, in there. So, so the the quote from the, he said, I, I 
talked to Governor Edward Edwards about other matters about the Superdome because we didn't want to have it. Uh, we got into a conversation about this. Uh, and I said, you know, hey, he wanted to buy the Saints. This deal with this John Meekum was very interesting. He wanted to sell the club, but I didn't have that much money. I think it went for like $100 million, but we paid a little less, maybe $90 million. They agreed to take out the note that we paid out. So the state sort of backed the funding. When he showed up at the sort of signing, he said, you know, where's the group that you got? And, ben, and the governor said, you you are the group, Tom. You're, you're the guy who's going to do it. So Jim Mora was one of uh, his, uh, his first hires. Uh, and Jim Mora was actually a pretty successful coach. Playoffs. Jim Mora the father. Playoffs. Playoffs. We did not. No, no, that, that was in, that was was in, in uh, Indianapolis. Yeah, I know. They did that. We, what you might remember about Jim Mora is that he had the famous speech where he's like, we didn't do diddly poo. And he, uh, he flipped out <laughs> we after couldn't like do a, diddly poo offensively. We couldn't sweet. run the ball. We didn't try, we to, run didn't try to run the ball. We didn't run the ball. Yeah. Uh, Joe, so Mora actually resigned after that, uh, famous rant during the, that time, the Ben, the saints made the first, the playoffs in 1987 for the first time. And, and Tom Benson basically debuted what was known then as the Benson boogie. So he used to come down on the sidelines and he used to bring one of those little umbrellas that you guys hate so much. And he would sort of like wave his arms around, kind of like the uh, the Steve Ballmer thing, the famous sort of clip of uh, where he just flail, his arms would flail independent of his body. And the fans loved this. They just ate it up. It was sort of seen as kind of like, you know, Mardi Gras-esque uh, sort of fun Uh and you know the Saints were were decent back then. They were not. They they didn't have consecutive winning seasons for quite a while, but they were certainly like relevant for the first time uh, in in a long time. So Benson he continued to kind of you know work his way up through being like a league. Uh, I, I guess an important person within the league. He was on the league's. Uh, he was chair became chairman in 1989 of the league's finance committee, which is one of its most important groups. He he served on that basically that uh, chair until like 2013, like a long time, a long stint, and was one of the people who sort of helped grow the the league, yes, you know, financially, because he he knew how to make money. Uh, in 1997, uh, Benson committed what probably was seen as his first true gaffe of uh, his tenure was that he hired Mike Dicka to uh, God, coach, I this. coach the Saints. Uh, he said, years later after the season, he said, whoa, Dicka. This is long after Dick was gone. He was sort of looking back at it. That was a character. I knew something was wrong with Dicka when I walked in there and he had people around in a meeting and I look over there and they had a little room next to the meeting and there's all this wine and whiskey. And I said, what the hell is this? That was a real pistol. I'll tell you what. <laughs> so the, the Dicka era, honestly, is just one of the truly like enjoyable tenures of a of failure in NFL uh, history. Dicka was... Sort of, you know, he had been fired from the Bears uh, in, you know, not that long ago. He had been doing some TV. He, he had, during his tenure with the Bears, you know, he had gotten a reputation for having such a terrible temper. He and uh, Jim Harbaugh got in like a screaming match on the sideline. He was, you know, constantly like getting into it with the press and getting into it with fans. But he sort of said, you know, I'm, I'm a changed man. Like, I don't need this for my legacy. I'm going to come in here. And the Saints initially wanted to offer Dick a five-year contract. And he said, no. I want a three-year deal. If I can't get it done in three years, I deserve to be fired. <laughs> and then he pushes all his chips in to get Ricky yes. Williams. Yes, the Ricky so, Williams draft. One of his first uh, – it's actually his second year. Leading up to the 1999 draft, Dick has decided he wanted Ricky Williams to play for the Saints. 
at an NFL owners meeting two months before the draft, he publicly stated he would try. He publicly stated he would trade his entire draft to acquire Williams. He compared him, Driggy Williams, to Walter Payton, his star running back that he coached with the Bears. Other teams had doubts about Williams' passion for the game, uh, including his judgment of hiring Master P as his agent. <laughs> with, <laughs> I didn't with realize limited, that. Oh yeah, with limited leverage, uh, Saints manager uh, limited yeah, leverage against yeah. no against no against limit no other teams. Uh, the Saints general manager, Bill Carrerich, I can't, I think that's how it's pronounced, began discussing with teams uh, holding the first five selections. The Saints offered, poor Randy here, the Saints offered nine draft picks to the Cincinnati Bengals for the third overall choice, but the Bengals declined the deal. The Saints, Saints then got the Washington Redskins to agree uh, to, they would send their first round, third round, fourth round, fifth round, sixth round, seventh round pick, the 99 draft, and also their first and third round picks in the following year for the uh, draft. This was uh, to what the, team? This was to the Redskins. The Redskins. Uh, who held, held the God, fifth, and the uh, Bengals probably drafted like Achilles Smith or something, you know. Uh, that is very possible. I did not look that up. Uh, maybe TC. What year can, was this? Uh, that would have been 1999 draft. Uh, but uh, yeah, whoever the yeah, Bengals Achilles drafted. Achilles Smith the year. or like Peter Warwick maybe. Uh, oh, 99 man. was the Bengals drafted Achilles Smith. Yes. That was Tim Couch, Donovan McNabb, <laughs> yeah. Achilles Smith, Edger and James, and, and then Ricky Williams. Oh my God. He traded all those and picks then, to get to like the sixth pick just to, oh, that's And then so Tory Holt, Champ Bailey, David Boston round out the top eight. Yeah. This is a quick, I'm going to read a quick thing from Sports Illustrated here because, uh, this, this, the deal that Master P basically like, threatened Ricky Williams into signing with him. And, and then he signed with the Saints is like one of the most ridiculous, like uh, terrible deals in NFL history. So this is from Sports Illustrated. There was nowhere to run and not a blocker in sight. So Heisman Trophy winning running back Ricky Williams lowered his head, bit his lip and took his punishment. Outnumbered 10 to 1 in a room whose walls seemed to be closing in, Williams absorbed a tongue lashing from Percy Miller, a man with a mouthful of gold diamonds. And on this February morning, harsh words for a potential client. Miller, known to legions of hip-hop fans and moviegoers as Master P, had been awakened a week earlier by a 4 a.m. call from Williams, who had expressed a desire to sign with No Limit Sports, Master P's fledgling agency. The next day, however, Williams split uh, for Maui to play in the Hula Bowl and left Master P hanging. Finally, they were together in a guest room at the U.S. Grand Hotel in San Diego, along with an entourage of Master P's associates, commonly known as the No Limit Soldiers. Williams didn't dare talk back. It's time for you to step up and be a man, Master P barked. People are going to be player haters and talk a bunch of shit. You got to be hard. People like us are capable of breaking down all the barriers. We got to stick together. So stop fucking around with us if you ain't serious because we ain't got time to waste on you. Williams was furious. You don't even know me or what I'm about, he thought, or we wouldn't be saying this. He looked up at Master P, a ghetto-raised rap icon whose songs featured images of street violence and urban ills and swallowed hard. I was very intimidated, Williams said, who was raised in a middle-class suburb of San Diego. I'd never met a rapper before. I knew his lyrics, so I didn't know what to think. I had to swallow my, my nuts a little bit. It was very awkward. You know when you're a kid and you're getting lectured by your mom and her face gets enormous? That's how I felt. So the deal that uh, Master P basically uh, signed, forced Williams to sign was full of all kinds of incentives that he could make potentially like millions of dollars. It could be like a super lucrative deal if uh, if it worked out. But it was like so many of the actual incentives were like ridiculous. 
that says rival agents ripped the deal, especially given Williams' extraordinary leverage. Because New Orleans had given up so much to draft Williams, the NCAA's all-time leading rusher, a drawn-out contract dispute would have been a public relations nightmare for the club. Saints owner Tom Benson told his chief negotiator, salary calf consultant Terry O'Neill, he wanted Williams signed promptly. Happily for Benson, Williams wanted to be signed quickly too so he could begin the Saints' off-season workout program on time. On May 16th, Hardy pushed to complete the deal before then. When you have the team by the balls, and no agent I can think of have been in that situation for years, for you to get a deal with Williams to make a mockery of this business is absurd, said one agent. Among other things, Hardy was criticized for agreeing to such a long-term deal. Given the short playing years of most NFL running backs, average of three and a half years, this could be Williams' only contract. When negotiations began in, in Mississippi, spilling into daily rounds at the Dancing Rabbit Golf Club, where Saints coach Mike Dick as a member, O'Neill said the team wouldn't agree to a contract with voidable years, which would have allowed Williams to get out of the deal seven seasons early by achieving an easy-to-reach statistical plateaus. Hardy quickly agreed. Then playing on Hardy's old-school values, O'Neill persuaded him in an arrangement jacking up Williams' salary if he satisfied relatively soft requirements, such as the Arizona Cardinals gave Andre Wadsworth that year. It would be That would be disrespectful to Barry Sanders, Walter Payton, Jim Brown, and the other great backs in NFL history. Instead, Hardy sought a deal that would reward Williams for high levels of productivity. He could earn as much as $500,000 in incentives, but his base salary would remain at minimal levels, $175,000 to $400,000, unless he activated escalator clauses. The most lucrative required him to match three or four statistical standards established by Terrell Davis over his first four seasons. Besides Davis, the only runner in NFL history to have reached even two of those plateaus is Hall of Famer Eric Dickerson. I would flabbergasted when i saw the numbers says img's tom condon the agent for the number one selection that year tim couch you could be barry sanders and not achieve some of those incentives how big was the signing bonus uh i think it was like it was like eight million signing bonus and the incentives would be worth between 11 and 68 million dollars yes pretty uh, pretty wide but golf on, basically only guaranteed the signing bonus and league minimum yes yeah. yes oh, man. <laughs> Disastrous deal in terms of uh, it obviously didn't become precedent, but uh, the the masterpiece uh, negotiating and no limit sports negotiating soldiers didn't perhaps uh, do their due diligence there. If you guys remember this, Mike Dicka and Ricky Williams posed on the cover of ESPN magazine, uh, saying that they were um, wedded to one another. I do in which remember Ricky, this. Ricky Williams wore a wedding dress, and Mike Dicka wore a tuxedo. Uh, I believe the. Uh, for better or worse was the headline. And I remember uh, the article having a, a big photo shoot of like Ricky Williams in a, you know, French quarter apartment, you know, with like the wrought iron and stuff. And it was just a, you know, God, I could I close my eyes and picture that article. Yes. As you can imagine, that did not uh, sort of go well. Dicka, who said that he... He felt that the um, they actually initially asked Dicka to be in the wedding dress, but he said it went against his uh, conservative politics, so he would not do it. Uh, why Ricky Williams went along with it, uh, no idea. Uh, but still, will probably go down as as one of the. I mean, probably the most memorable magazine in ESPN the magazine cover in uh, ESPN the magazine history, but was certainly seen as like huge controversy uh, at the time, just because it was so um, outlandish and and became and basically helped them that era become a huge mockery. So in general, the Dicka era was truly, truly a shit show. And the Redskins did nothing with their hall. Like I think they Correct. drafted Champ Bailey, Champ Bailey, which was and Lamar Arrington, but then they managed mm -hmm. to fuck up that massive hall and 
trade champ for Clinton Portis and all that. Yes. So. The Dick era was just sort of seen as like a, a big, you know, shit show. Like he, he was seemed like uninspired that he was, didn't really want to work. You know, the, the Chicago Tribune sort of said somehow the the saint, he Dicka made the saints a bigger laughing stock than they were before. Uh, Benson said on the day that he hired Dicka that he, he brought has brought pride and character back to the club, uh, which didn't exactly work out when uh, Dicka was uh, caught during a game uh, flipping off fans and grabbing his crotch on his 60th birthday in, after a 24 to 21 uh, fourth quarter loss and uh, it's a close game to the Titans. He was just sort of seen, you know, Dicka was always apologetic about his dumbass behavior, but they couldn't actually like get him to sort of work hard. He seemed kind of like checked out. He would sort of leave the facility early often to go and play golf. Uh, he told reporters, sometimes getting older isn't getting smarter. What I probably did was as stupid as anything I've ever done. This is about flipping off the fans. Uh, I made the promise it'll never happen again, but that's like closing a barn door after the horse is out. The Saints were sort of really like, you know, part of their New Orleans culture is just like, we want to make this stuff entertaining, right? And exciting. And so I don't know if you guys remember this at all. One of the th sort of things that they had at the time during the Dicka era was that they had a dog that was on the sidelines and would run out to get the tea off of the thing out for kickoffs. And then the dog would run back. <laughs> so this I was, remember that. Oh yeah. It's called the uh, uh, fetch monster was his name. Uh, and fetch monster was like a, quite a delight to like fans, you know, they would show it on broadcasts or whatever. And when Dicka uh, was fired after three years, this, uh, and this whole train wreck and they <clears throat> basically Benson was like, all right, we have to clean house. Like everyone has to be gone, including the dog, including the fetch monster. <laughs> including the fetch. It, it was Hazlitt also that came in and basically Jim Hazlitt and basically said like, Hey, one of the, the PR people said, uh, everyone was gone. These new folks came in from out of town. And I think the idea was, look, we have this losing culture and they wanted to change everything. So I understand the degree, but the, the, the truth behind the story is that Jim Hazlitt did not want a live dog. And he came and he said, if you do a mascot, that's fine. But I no longer want a live dog on the field. That dog has got to go. <laughs> TC, so uh, Dick one, seems like a big eye test guy. Oh, for sure. I think the one thing that kind of pisses me off about it all is Ricky Williams was really, really good those first couple of years for the, for the Dolphins. Like he was, that was one of my favorite players to watch. They would just line up in like an ace set and give him the ball like 12 plays in a row. And he would just, he'd get like eight yards every play. It was crazy. He ran for like, you know, 18 or 1900 yards one season. No, it's such a travesty that like a guy with that much mileage from college had an incentive based deal like that, <laughs> you know, and no wonder he went and lived in a tent in Australia. Like that sucks, dude. Yeah. If anybody's looking for a good read, my buddy Chris Jones went and found Ricky Williams when he was living in a tent in Australia. Uh, one of the more famous Esquire stories, memorable of uh, of that David Granger tenure. It was truly, I mean, and he smoked a shit ton of weed with uh, Ricky Williams too and played poker with him. So uh, you can look that story up if you can get it on Esquire behind its paywall. Things after the Dicka thing, uh, Benson was sort of like, all right, like we need to sort of make things a little bit more you know, professional in 2002, uh, Hazlitt actually made them, you know, he's Dick was fired in 99 season, but Hazlitt the next year, like leads them to the playoffs. So the scenes are starting to sort of find this is their first playoff, uh, birth, I think, um, first playoff win in the, in the history of the franchise was that year. Jeez. Uh, and then, yeah, think about that. They, they go from 66 to 
uh, 2000 and never win a playoff game. So uh, in 2002, Benson hired Mickey Loomis to be his general manager, uh, which is a position that Loomis still holds, uh, which is kind of remarkable that a lot, not a lot of GMs, you know, end up holding their spot for 20 years, you know, whether it's like, this is a stud, man. Yep. Pretty good at, uh, at things, you know, just figuring out stuff in general. In 2003, Benson's second wife, uh, Grace Marie Trudeau Benson dies of Parkinson's disease. This sort of sets in motion what I would sort of, I think, generously describe as a plot from succession as the closest thing that the NFL has had to an absolute uh, shit show about who is going to take over the next, uh, you know, take over a team. Because in 2004, Tom Benson decides he wants to get back out there. And he meets a woman named Gail uh, Bird, who had been an interior designer. She'd grown up in New Orleans as well. And Gail was, you know, initially uh, they, they went and had smoothies together. Uh, you know, he, he kept calling her, basically said, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in you. And she had she had been married twice before. And so she was a little bit wary about uh, whether she wanted to get involved with uh, with another you know person. But eventually she won him over and and Gail had sort of an interesting uh, background, I would say, you know, she had uh, grown up very poor in New Orleans, and she had been married at 19, uh, and then divorced like a year later. And then she had gotten married again, uh, to a man who had had two children. And that man, uh, basically, she said that God was asking me to take care of these children. And that's why, uh, you know, I was I decided to do it that that marriage was a disaster that the guy was an alcoholic. And so she basically decided that she didn't ever think she wanted to get married. She said, well, I thought God was telling me to take those kids on. She told the NFL Network uh, two years ago. When I was growing up, my mother told me, good girls get married, have babies, and stay at home. And I was like, oh, no. Uh, she described that marriage as miserable, divorced the man after the children was grown. The pain of that experience worsened when one of her own children died of an overdose. Uh, which is one of those children died of an overdose because she sort of felt like she had failed. These, are, Both the Bensons, Gail uh, and uh, Tom, are very Catholic, so it will come up there. They had been raised in sort of Catholic schools, Catholic families, and uh, that will be extremely important to them uh, as they sort of get aging and decide what they want to do with their various uh, wealth and who they want to associate with. Uh, Gail struggled a little bit in business as an interior decorator. One of the sort of reasons that... Uh, people were skeptical of her is because uh, during a roughly a 13-year period, this is according to the New York Times-Picayune, Benson was targeted by roughly 20 civil lawsuits in New Orleans, to, uh, disputes mostly involved interior decorating projects overseen by her or of company. Some of the allegations, overbilling a client, non-payment of a contractor, foreclosure of proceedings on properties she had a share in, seemed to hint at a small business owner in disarray. Uh, nonetheless, Tom Benson's top lieutenants have insisted it is not unusual for interior designers to become ensnared in disagreements with uh, customers or contractors. They cite what they say as a number of satisfied clients, including such things as Schwegman Brothers, Giant Supermarkets, Hyatt Hotels, and the hotel now known as the Roosevelt, the Ritz-Carlton, and the Omni Hotels of New Orleans. So this is you know someone who took on uh, various big projects, uh, redesign stuff. Those are like the three big hotels in New Orleans. Yeah. So... <laughs> so Part of what uh, was sort of complicated here is that for years, uh, Tom Benson, his granddaughter, Rita, had interned in the NFL uh, front office and she had sort of, you know, been, I guess, what I would sort of, I guess, describe as, what is the right word? Like 
grooming her to become uh you know the the eventual heir of the uh the franchise and so she rita had sort of uh you know worked in the front offices with the saints Uh, eventually when he buys the pelicans she sort of helps become in charge there and so as often uh happens in a lot of these situations when when dad or grandpa gets a a new wife a third wife in this uh, situation Things get a little tense uh, as time goes on about what's going to happen to things over time. But on the field, uh, the Saints start to sort of continue to have some more success. Um, There was an incident where Tom Benson got into sort of a a shoving match with a cameraman on the sidelines. And after they were, uh, it was, he was arguing with a fan and the camera caught it and he tried to shove the camera away. And after this, he said he would no longer attend Saints games in Baton Rouge because this is when they were playing a sort of a, a, it's a temporary game there in Baton Rouge, just sort of part of the Katrina stuff. So Katrina happens, uh, as, as you all know, devastating to you know the city of New Orleans. The Superdome this is, ends up getting used as a temporary shelter uh, at this time. You know Benson had never been like a huge fan of Superdome, which had been built prior to his tenure. It was you know seen as kind of an aging, uh, kind of decrepit stadium even then, and he had been kind of wishing, you know, this is a man who likes to make money and uh, been sort of hopeful that the the state, the state would help pay for some upgrades. And of course, you know, Katrina comes around and and uh, there's no way this is going to happen. And so the Saints move their operations to San Antonio, uh, which of course is near and dear to Tom Benson's heart because he has been a car salesman here. And San Antonio, you know, one of the larger cities in the United States without an NFL franchise. And Does he still have the car dealerships at this point? He does, yes. Okay. He's has continued to own the car dealerships and eventually uh, when he dies like his heirs will end up selling off some of those dealerships uh later down the run so he kept these car dealerships like for all okay. three the man had his hands in like a lot of pies uh as a result of texas uh, car dealerships fascinate me like there was this guy david mcdavid who tried to buy the hawks when we were hmm. growing up and he was out of dallas but same thing like just car dealership dude that just hustled his way up yeah this is about the time that uh, he, he starts to become, I would say, seen as an enemy uh, to the state of uh, Louisiana. The New Orleans people, they, they can feel Tom Benson itching to move the team uh, to San Antonio or to somewhere else where he can potentially make more money. And they don't like it uh, one bit. I'm going to read here from a, a piece that uh, Wright Thompson wrote about New Orleans. He says, the Saints matter deeply to the people of New Orleans, but in the year after the storm, the man who owned the team did not. Tom Benson became public enemy number one because people saw him threaten to move the team to San Antonio. Fans booed him when the Saints played the, at LSU Tiger Stadium, and he threw a temper tantrum once over the abuse. With a city filled with rancid refrigerators, a meme emerged. People spray painted them with the words, do not open, Tom Benson inside. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So it's still more right. Former NFL commissioner Paul Tagadu said that Benson wanted the team based in San Antonio for the 2006 season, and the team officials were telling employees to prepare to move. The mayor of San Antonio pushed for relocation. One of President Clinton's cabinet secretaries, HUD director and former mayor of San Antonio, Henry, Henry Cisneros, reached out to the commissioner arguing on behalf of moving the franchise. The Saints fiercely denied that the team tried to move. 
It was the priority of Tom Benson to get the Saints back to New Orleans as soon as feasibly possible, uh, spokesman said. His only public statement back in 2005 that we was returning home and that we would lead the charge to rebuild. In fact, many businesses did not and have not returned. But following Katrina, we can proudly argue that Tom Benson has led a renaissance in our city. Uh, so behind the scenes, not exactly the truth. Tom Benson continued to kind of negotiate until essentially the commissioner said, you know, Tagliabue delivered this message to him. He said, there's no way you are going to move this team to San Antonio for the 2016, 2006 season, Tagliabue said. And Benson said, how can you say that? And Tagliabue replied, it takes three-fourths of the owners to move a team, and there is no owner out there who is to prove who is prepared to abandon New Orleans. Yeah, the optics of that for the NFL would have been devastating. Correct. Which, you know what, Roger probably would have said the opposite. Roger would have been like, you know what? We'll figure it out for you. You yeah. go do it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> hey, we'll support you whatever. That's uh, that's great. Uh, I'm just going to continue to steal from my friend right here because I think he explains it really well here. Uh, he says, two women helped change the way New Orleans felt about Tom Benson after the Saints returned. The first, his granddaughter, Rita Benson LeBlanc, made him finally seem in tune with the city. Rita's rise to power in the organization was primarily about repairing relationships between the family and New Orleans. She grew up in Texas, spending her summers running around Saints practices until she went to college and spent her summers interning at the NFL office in New York. Tom Benson, who she called Pawpaw, adored her and saw her as his best chance to turn the Saints into a family dynasty. With each year, he gave her more responsibility and titles to go with it. Between 2006 and 2010, when the Saints were still building towards something, a now 38-year-old Rita became the public face of a youthful modern corporation, fully in tune with the city it represented. Actors and celebrities watched the games in her suite. Everyone's place arranged according to a seating chart she closely managed. The art museum was wanted her for its board, and she found herself at the nerve center of the city, drinking whiskey and talking politics in James Carville's living room. Better than anyone else at the Saints facility and airline drive, Rita saw the connections between the town and the team of the years after Katrina and talked to them about ways that they weren't ham-fisted, talked to, to them about the city in ways that weren't ham-fisted or trite. At a meeting at the first uh, at the uh, at a meeting as the team prepared for its first season back in the Superdome, she listened as marketing people pitched pop culture slogans and themes that ignored the drowning elephant in the room. She said the team's slogan needed to be something that reflected the goals of a football team and subtly of New Orleans. They hung a banner on the Superdome that said, "Our home, our team, be a saint." So Rita is kind of one of the things that basically like completely helps rehab Tom's reputation in the city seen as like the heir apparent the 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 ken uh to logan's you know uh to roy empire she's gonna you know restore things she's gonna run things right but it turns out that gail has kind of other ideas and mm. gail decides uh one year that grandpa is not going to spend christmas with uh his grandkids for the first time in their entire lives that is they are just going to spend Christmas together, and the children are not welcome uh, to come to to uh, Christmas. As anyone who's ever had any sort of family drama can uh, attest, uh, this things start out small and become quite large fairly quickly. So at a Saints game uh, where Rita had not been able to see her grandfather for you know months, she wanted to get into his suite, his box, and see him. And Rita, excuse me, and Gail would not allow this. 
And so they ended up in a physical confrontation where Rita was described as physically shaking Gale by the shoulders. And they had to be essentially separated. And there was all a grand discussion about, uh, you know, uh, sort of, you know, bad this was. And shortly after this, uh, Tom issues a note that says, essentially, I'm cutting off all contact with all of my grandchildren. They're being taken out of any succession plan and I will replace the value of the the things that they were going to inherit uh, with money, but they are not getting any piece of the Pelicans or the. Saints. I mean, this sounds like the the summer red Sumner Redstone <laughs> saga. Like, is he senile yes. at this point? Well, we'll get to that. You know, that, that <laughs> Great question. Yeah, that's yeah. You know, would like to understand uh, power of attorney situation here. One of the responses right from then from Renee Benson, that's their mom, and Rita's the granddaughter, and so Renee is the daughter is to file a lawsuit questioning whether he was mentally competent enough okay, to make good. the decision. <laughs> so uh, an incredible uh, thing sort of happens basically in this is a lawsuit, which is, you know, they, they have to bring in all these various doctors to depose uh, Benson and basically, you know, test his mental capacity. Okay, so in one of the things, Rita Benson... <laughs> <laughs> had made a secret recording of her grandfather that then was sort of played as part of the, um, the deposition in, in court to sort of prove that her grandfather was not, uh, did not have the mental capacity to make these kind of decisions. Uh, and so uh, he basically, you know, there's a, it was a long sort of drawn out sort of back and forth over this whole thing. And eventually the doctors, sorry, I'm going to read from this part here. It says, uh, this is from the, uh, the times Picayune. During the deposition, they asked Tom to sit down and write down a list of the reasons that he was mad at his grandchildren. Uh, and he was became extremely upset at this point and said, at one point shouted at the attorneys, you lying bastard, uh, as one of the psychiatrists examined him. The psychiatrist Ted Block had been selected by this, his estranged relatives to examine him. He had a grim review of Benson's memory problems and the other two psychiatrists. Uh, and, and basically, Benson shouted at the guy, you're, you're bullshit. Uh, as they discussed the secret recording that he made. And Benson said in the, in the deposition, I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> hold on, hold on, Mr. Benson. The judge said, you may not like it, but we have to maintain decorum in this court. Benson said, excuse me, excuse me. I didn't think you could hear me, judge. Uh, and the judge said, yes, well, I did. He had various bizarre outbursts during the trial, but ultimately it's decided in his favor that he is uh, competent. They reach sort of a settlement. Uh, and he is allowed to sort of, you know, make this maneuver where he cuts out all of his children and grandchildren from any connection to the saints. And, and eventually that uh, his, he's able to name his wife as the heir, Gail. So as you can imagine, like very, very, very messy, complicated, which isn't even to sort of talk about like there are other. I mean, I think we need to talk for a sec about Bounty Gate, uh, which is sort of one of the most famous shameful episodes in NFL history in the sense of it, the saints after, you know, Loomis is hired, you know, uh, at this point, Sean Payton is the coach and they're hiring Greg double G Williams. Uh, one of TC's Frosted favorite tips, Greg, uh, kill the head. The yeah, body will that. die. Fourth leg, Greg, Greg is sort of, you know, hired to sort of be, um, you know, get return the toughness to uh, the saints uh, defense and, and whatnot. And, and basically what comes out over time uh, is that they implement a bounty program where you can um, get money uh, basically to, you know, knock out other teams, star players, uh, 
Brett Favre and Kurt Warner being sort of two of the most famous that the Saints allegedly targeted. The NFL hears rumors of this, you know, bounty program, investigates it, you know, tells tells Benson, you know, if this is going on, you better make sure to knock it off. Benson sort of makes it, you know, clear to Peyton, if this is happening, I need you to end it. The Saints deny that it ever has happened. There's no, you know, they say absolutely not. There's not going to, there's no, there never was a bounty program here. Uh, you know, everyone's lying about that, you know, and the league says, okay, you know, that's fine. We're, we trust you. We believe you. But then a defensive assistant a couple years later on uh, on the Saints team, Mike Cerullo, gets fired. And he goes to the league as essentially a whistleblower. And he tells them that he was one of the people who was a bookkeeper on this uh, sort of thing. And this kind of leads to, like, the Saints being, you know, getting unprecedented suspensions. Peyton suspended for a year. Williams is, is banned indefinitely. Jonathan Vilma, another one of your favorites, TC, I know, from the U. Uh, and Scott Fujita and Will Smith and Anthony Hargrove all served lengthy suspensions. Um, it, Joe Vitt, sorry, was one of the sort of people who yeah. was originally uh, came up with the, you know, idea to institute the bounty program. And the the if you remember the NFC Championship game against the Vikings, Brett Favre just got beaten and battered. That was supposedly like one of the the biggest things. They uh, the following year, they in a in a game against the Cardinals, they battered around Kurt Warner and basically caused him to have a chest injury. He retired the following year. The Saints were allegedly sort of saying, uh, surreal quoted Vit uh, as saying, you know, uh, about both Favre and uh, thing. Well, we're going to end their career. That old man should have retired when I was there. If he is retiring, uh, it, he'll be it'll be over tomorrow. We're going to end his career tomorrow and force him to retire. And they had said that we'll end the, his career too about Kurt Warner. So at this time, like the whole NFL is like extremely embarrassed by all this stuff. Other owners, at least two other owners, called Benson specifically and said, "You need to fire Sean Payton. Uh, he cannot be the coach anymore." And Benson was like, "No, like this is the guy who brought me my first Super Bowl title. Uh, absolutely not. I'm I'm sticking with him." And Payton always said that that was like super. You know, he. he just was completely moved by that loyalty that uh, Benson Benson's very much a guy who if you back him into a corner, he's like, Hey, fuck you. Like yeah. I'm going to do whatever. Uh, that I was see. what Rooney and Mara, right. Were two of the, that was in the, the uh, yes, the I believe that Seth Wickersham article. Correct. Uh, on uh, Sean Payton. Yeah. That's some serious emotion from sociopath Sean Payton. <laughs> yes. Seen as one of those kind of more, you know, I don't want to disgraceful. I mean, it's, it's these various like scandals had come up and that was Tagliaboo that sort of had handled that. But then, you know, Spygate stuff and Deflategate stuff falls under Goodell. But all those things are kind of like, one of the things I think you find when you do these things and you read a lot about this stuff is that all of these scandals are in some way like connected with how they, the, some owners get angry about the way that certain other owners are punished for certain things. Right. And so then they, you know, throw their weight around and seek retribution and get pissed off about, uh, various things. And so some of what happened to what the way the saints were punished and the way the Patriots were not punished made other owners fucking furious. And so that's where, like, when we talk about what, what factions in within the NFL hierarchy you are like the, uh, the saints are, were seen definitely as like on, one divide of it and like the Patriots on, on sort of another divide. And the saints probably too, were already in the doghouse for trying to move and Benson, you know, like Raj comes in after Tagliaboo and, you know, probably thinks, all right, this guy's a malcontent. I don't want to deal with him kind of thing anyway, too. Yes. 
when Tom Ginson's getting old at this point, he's really kind of, um, you know, he's getting up there in years as, as things go on. The Saints are still trying to kind of think that the succession plan is in place. And when Tom Benson finally um, dies, Gale becomes which, the which was of, what uh, year? Uh, excuse me. It is. Uh, he's, he announced he was going to give Gale the uh, thing in 2015, and he died in, I believe, 2018 uh, at, at age 90. He went into the hospital uh, basically having sort of flu symptoms. Uh, he was when he would when he died. He was whatever like ill will that had arisen during Katrina had long been washed away because he was sort of just basically beloved. And, you know, the, the coverage of his passing in the times Picayune and the New Orleans advocate were seen as like, you know, I would say they're very gushing. Like this is a, a great man, you know, at this point, Gail had sort of helped Tom understand that you have so much money that you should really, you know, kind of use it to, I think, I don't know, I'm not going to quote directly on this, but I think, fair to say like help your reputation a little bit and so he actually paid for the stadium that where they play the pro football hall of game fame stuff there's a statue of him outside it's named after him uh i think he gave like 11 million to to get that sort of thing built in canton there's also a statue of him uh so as a man with two statues i mean i think that's a you know unless you're like a dictator in the middle east like a two statue kind of thing seems like an admirable kind of goal you've you've, you've done some things right in your life that might be a goal of mine tc gets two TC's. statues where would your statues be, TC? What's Maybe uh, one's outside the Waffle House where I'm going to do the 24 hours. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's also super interesting. Like the, the Saints at some point, don't they do their training camp up at the Greenbrier? They do. Yes. Uh, Which is so like Tom Benson and fucking, what's his name up there? Jim Justice. Just That just blows my mind, those two interacting. Yes. As we get move on into Gale a little bit, uh, the Greenbrier actually comes up because a <laughs> an assistant uh, named Rodney Henry, who had worked for Tom Benson for 25 years, files a lawsuit eventually against Gale uh, that accuses her of uh, racially discrim racial discrimination and uh, that she treated him with disdain and respect. And one of the sort of things in that lawsuit was that they were um, staying at the the Greenbrier, and he basically was stuck in a room without any sort of air conditioning, uh, and no towels or anything like that. And that um, he he was, you know, Tom Benson, when Henry informed him about this, was very upset and was like, well, let's get you into like a, a much better, like luxurious room or whatever. But then when Tom left the room, I think uh, I, I would I would wonder maybe it doesn't say this in the lawsuit, but if Gail like was arranging like saying where gail apparently screamed screamed at this henry guy and said i hate you uh and referred to him as a black son of a bitch uh at Jesus. one point uh, allegedly allegedly excuse me yes very much so uh so he had worked for you know for 25 years for tom so this uh, there's some some things that had started to emerge over time uh that that gail you know i, I don't want to say like not a good person but uh has some ties with some some things that aren't great. Another one that emerges uh, in 2020 is that the New Orleans Roman Catholic Church uh, archdiocese gets wrapped up in a, in a massive sort of pedophilia scandal, right? And it turns out when the sort of feds look into this, that the archdiocese, when they had to put out a statement saying, you know, these are the priests that are kind of been defrocked and that, you know, are been terrible and we, we feel terribly sorry about this, that the saints... We're giving them like PR advice on how to handle 
this scandal and that uh, that Gail was one of the people who was like directly involved in this mess and that some of the names that were on an initial list, some of those people were removed from that list. Like, you remember the Bensons are very Catholic, uh, very connected to, you know, the archdiocese and, and given lots of money to over the years. And that, you know, she, she claims that she had nothing to do with this. She doesn't even read her emails. So how would she ever know like what, you know, that anyone, how would dare anyone would imply that she was involved in covering this stuff up, but not the best look that the saints are like running PR for the Catholic church in new Orleans. So speaking of pedophilia, the, uh, the saints also currently employ John Sandusky, Jerry hmm. Sandusky's son as a scout. It's oh, really, yeah. Well, I mean, you can't you can't criticize yeah, can't. God for the sins of his father. I mean, that's that's as we learned with Urs, with the Ursays, that, that that'll recommend, you know. Totally, totally. He's he's had a circuitous route in the NFL. Uh, so KVV, Gail is currently in charge of the team. She is. She is uh, also in charge of the Pelicans. She is seen as the first female owner of two uh, to of, to hold two franchises at the same time. So she's free um, and clear. Like, she is free and clear. They, they, the long-running court battle with the the two sides basically reached a settlement in uh, in 2017, and so the the children were or the grandchildren basically had some parts of their like the, the almost I think the full amount of their trust made good, but they no longer have any sort of connection to the wow. uh, Saints or the Pelicans. So where do you so, think she sits now in the hierarchy with the other owners? She's seen as like pretty uh, pretty well liked and pretty popular. I don't know about in terms of like super powerful but um she has basically she's very good at what we talked about early on is like the pr stuff about where you're getting your your reputation i, I want to say i think cleansed is a fair thing uh by giving away tons of money to charitable causes to sort of see and she has announced that her succession plan she doesn't have any children of her own uh is to basically let this the sale of the saints when it happens and we'll, you know, assume when she, upon her death that it'll be what probably then she's, you know, she's older, but she's not, uh, I think she's in her seventies. It will go back to the city of new Orleans, mostly to all kinds of philanthropical sort of things. So like the schools, like the ballet, the uh, museums, art centers, whatever. So you're talking about billions of dollars. that's going to go back into, they're going to sell it to somebody else and give the money to but charity the, or the, or the, the city itself that, is going to own. No, no, they're okay. going to sell it to somebody else. Somebody else will buy the it. Proceeds the will go will, to the city. Will, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I'm sure that won't uh, get misused. No, not at all. <laughs> no, that seems <laughs> in like a place like New Orleans, though. That never no, New Orleans, that would that yeah. could never happen. Uh, I just uh, got. I'm, I'm struggling to wrap my head around former interior designer. Uh, you know, in the room, twice divorced, twice divorced, uh, in the room with these 31 other owners that are all, you know. Just, she might be a dog and a killer. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only the other one is that the Titans are kind of owned in a similar situation, like a yeah. third, a third, a third by the you know the children, grandkids of um, whoever the Houston guy was. I can't remember his name. McNair, right? No, that no, was the no that's Amy expired. Adams, but but Amy, that's right. uh, Bud Adams, Bud Amy Adams, drunk. Yeah, yeah. Gail, you'll enjoy this, Neil. She said, uh, in speaking of like uh, the NFL Network, did what I would describe as a massive puff piece on her. Um, a while ago, and they asked her, you know, you know, do you ever feel like intimidated in those rooms of being like, you know, you're an interior designer and being village? And she said, well, you know, God gave my husband a gift to make a lot of money, 
And I feel that he passed that gift on to me. <laughs> so God, God was at work in making rich people richer, baby. I mean, yeah, at least she's got Mickey Loomis, right? To, to teams, they, you know, it's, it's a good it's franchise. It's so amazing the way that they run the franchise too. It's like they're like, they just never have to pay their credit card bill off and mm-hmm. they just get out of it every time. And they, they manage to field, you know, they still have a good defense kind of transitioning on offense, but like, it kind of goes back to, you know, Oh six breeze comes along and like, how much different does that franchise look of breeze? Which was not a guaranteed thing comes from the chargers with a busted shoulder. And he's like six foot, nothing like, I mean, talk about an upset. He failed his dolphins, uh, physical, right? Something. Yeah. Like he had a full, like reconstructive surgery on his throwing shoulder as a a dude. That's not even like a physical specimen to begin with. Saban always claims that he wanted Breeze, but that the medical staff wouldn't sign off on the thing, so they had to take Dante Culpepper. Uh, so I, I would have to think that Saban could have overruled them and said, you know, I don't think the medical staff had enough power to say to, you know, Nick but Saban. But I guess it's, if we're going to relate this back to like Arthur Blank situation, like here's an owner that's like on, on paper, like completely doesn't have any business owning a pro sports team. But if you have the right operations people in place, it doesn't even matter. I mean, because like over the last 20 years, the Saints have just been like, you never look at the Saints at the beginning of the season or very rarely do you look at them. You're like, they're going to suck, right? Like maybe a little bit with the Jameis stuff, but like, it's kind of like, no, man, they're, they're like, they're always just, they're always a fielding a competitive team. And, and I think some of that comes back to the scouting, like in the way that they promote from, from within with like Kai Harley's an assistant GM. Now the Falcons, uh, got their director of player person or pro personnel, Terry Fontenot. Like, so maybe blank is like looking at the, at the saints as like, Hey, let's, let's dip into this. Cause they've got a great culture of, you know, player development, scouting and everything. So, uh, they always used to stay at the hotel. Um, they were like them and the bucks and the Steelers, a couple other teams, but like the saints every year would stay there. And they had this, they had this Japanese guy, was their like director of he was like their equipment guy or like their director of operations or whatever James Nakaoka I think and uh, he would always wear like this bizarre like fur coat and he would just be dressed to the nines and it was the most it, it was just such an interesting interesting franchise when they would roll in with Loomis and Dennis Lausha and all those guys and Peyton and the way that they ran things was so distinct from all the other teams that came through mm-hmm. it was fascinating. Uh, just a few things. Uh, I, we didn't really spend much time on the you know Saints winning the Super Bowl. Uh, I mean, that was obviously seen as like a massive kind of emotional uplift for the franchise. And um, I feel like you wanted to cover mostly the the Benson stuff, but just a few things like his uh, Gail is the, the players refer to her as Queen B. Uh, she every time there's like an article in the newspaper that, that features them, she will cut out the article and like sign like great job or whatever. So, and leave it in their locker. So she's very, you know, grandmotherly energy in that. Uh, she's, uh, she's the goddaughter to both Steve Gleason's, uh, daughter and, um, Drew Brees' daughter or so the, the, um, godmother, I guess, to both of them. So she, these are the players generally like very much like Gail a lot. Uh, there's not a lot of people like, um, you know, complaining about uh, how she might, she might be a bad actor. Uh, the Bensons also, Tom also got involved in the thoroughbred uh, industry, you know, as many rich people do. And a couple of his horses ran in the Kentucky Derby, um, but nothing like major success. Uh, they bought a minor league baseball team uh, that, you know, was kind of 
not a lot of super success, but both of, uh, I mean, some, some rich guys, like they kind of, you know, ditch their first wife, ditch their second wife or whatever. Uh, both of Tom Benson's, uh, two, two first wives, uh, died. And so, um, it wasn't like he kind of just bailed on someone and looking for an upgrade. Uh, he said that that was kind of one of some of the defining moments of life. Two of his kids died too of, uh, cancer. And so, uh, he said that I, I just about lost everything back then when it happened. It was sort of, um, quite devastating that, uh, his son, who was like a ranch hand, uh, ran his ranch, uh, died of cancer. So um, one other question. I mean, mm-hmm. the Superdome, it's iconic, but it does suck. That's got to be uh, – Are they, they're going to just ride with that? Because it is – we talked about it with Blank. Like getting a new stadium built is kind of a big piece of like a successful – like from a financial standpoint, a successful franchise. Like where, where do we stand with the Superdome? So they did, the Superdome was very much seen as like a frustrating shithole for a while, particularly after the, uh, the Katrina stuff, they put already put in $185 million in kind of upgrades to, um, fix that. Uh, and then there's some current reservations that are kind of undergoing. There's still like commit planning commission stuff and there. It's like almost like a half a billion dollar upgrade that's being discussed. Okay. So they're going to pour some more money into it. Yeah, I think that what I will say about the Superdome, having been there a couple of times, like it is certainly not like luxurious like some of the other stadiums, but it is really cool that it is like right downtown. Uh, and I, one of the things I love about, I, I think to me, one of my like most absurd but takes that I believe truly is that the Super Bowl should be in New Orleans every year because you can just, you have right downtown, you can walk almost everywhere. Uh, the weather is always decent. It's never like horrendous. Uh, it's, you know, it's a party city. So you got people coming over. It, you, it's just a fun energy when the Super Bowl is in New Orleans. Yeah. So. Still never um, been to New Orleans. TC. TC. We got to, we got to do that. We got to get you there. You, especially as a, a guy who loves food, who loves, I know, like, I know. there's so many good restaurants. In I know. Um, it's, oh. it's a, it's a total stain on my resume. Uh, I have to have you watch Treme just to, as a prep. Uh, I've, I've watched Treme. I've seen it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I love the quote in, in, this is just from Wikipedia, but uh, it, was, it was part of the, you know, lawsuits that were flying around uh, under the apparent supervision of Gail, the diet of Tom Benson is drastically deteriorated with him rarely consuming full nutritious meals, but instead for some reason subsisting on candy, ice cream, sodas, and red wine. Hell yeah. <laughs> that I mean, honestly, if I make it to like 90 years old, I don't want to really drink much more than red wine and eat candy. Like at that point, you know, what are you really like preserving? I don't, the back end of my years, I don't need those quite as much as the front ends. All right, gents, so. that's two hours and 22 minutes. Should we? You, Incredible. We want to, we want to pause there until episode four. I, I think I think we should. I think that's a. I, I enjoyed very much uh, the dichotomy of uh, someone who you know is, has it together and controls everything, and someone whose like personal life is a little bit of a mess. Uh, was near the end. I mean, and don't underestimate Gail Benson, though. Just I absolutely. KVV, are we sure that he doesn't have more statues? There's the it's Gail and Tom Benson Stadium at the in San Antonio at the University of the Incarnate Word. Uh, the football field at Yeoman Stadium in New Orleans at, uh, t- at Tulane is named after him wow. uh, as well. So that's a great, great question. I don't know, TC. They, uh, th- th- we have to do have look four, into that. Four statues. We might have to put the trap draw reporting team on the number of statues that exist for Tom Benson. If anyone out there knows the like, send in any other statues you know of. Statues. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would just encourage everybody to. Um, 
read my buddy Ray Thompson's piece uh, about New Orleans uh, that ran. Uh, you know, it was kind of like a year after, five years after Katrina. Uh, it, it's it's ridiculously long, but in the best kind of way. I think it's like thirty thousand words long. It was an entire issue of ESPN the magazine. Uh, the Bensons are sort of prominently part of that thing, but a lot of it is is just about the pulse of New Orleans and like what it was like to kind of rebuild. Uh, it's it's a fascinating piece of journalism. All right, thank you, gentlemen. Until next thank time. Thank you. Cheers. Favorite rapper, hey, now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper.